recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland, we wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Item two is the approval of minutes for the August 8th, 2023 Port Commission meeting. So move. Second. We have a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? The motion passes unanimously. The minutes of the August 8th, 2023 meeting are adopted. Item three is public comments on executive session. We will take public comment on executive session. Is there any public comment in the room? Seeing none. Corey, do we have anyone on the phone? For callers on the line, please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. And at this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Jenica, next item, please. Item four is executive session. There is one executive session item, conference with real property negotiator as agendized. Motion to go into executive session. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Motion passes unanimously. We are now in closed session. SFGov TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Aye. Aye. Any opposed? The motion passes unanimously. Jenica, next item, please. Item six is the Pledge of Allegiance. 
pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Item 7 is announcements. Please be advised that the ringing of and use of cell phones and similar sound-producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. A member of the public has up to three minutes to make public comments on each agenda item unless the Port Commission ad adopts a shorter period on any item. Public comment must be in respect to the current agenda item. The Commission will take in-person and remote public comments on each item beginning with commenters in person. For remote public comment, dial 1-415-655-0001 and enter access code 2661-912-6054 pound pound, then dial star three to raise your hand to comment on the item being discussed. An audio prompt will signal when it is your turn to speak. If you're watching this meeting on SFGov TV, there is a short broadcasting delay. To not miss your chance to comment, please dial when the item you want to comment on is announced, mute your device, and listen to the meeting from your telephone, which has no delay. Item eight is public comment on items not listed on the agenda. Thank you. We will now take public comment on items not listed on the agenda. We have a speaker, Daniel Conrad. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Mr. Vice President, Commissioners. I have a matter that is not on the agenda, but I would, it is within port jurisdiction. And I would like the uh, Commission to please consider either scheduling it for a future agenda or referring it to staff for investigation. What the matter is, is that I believe that the Giants are not complying with certain provisions of the ground lease with the port which deal with turning off the bright light towers promptly after the crowd has left, after a night game, which they don't do, and limiting the light in the ballpark to the minimum required for cleanup, which they don't do. The um, provisions that I think they're not complying with are in Exhibit F, Improvement Measures, and I have an excerpt if I may hand this to the clerk. Commission Secretary. I live in the two Townsend Street apartment complex, which is at Townsend and the Embarcadero. I live in building one, which is on the west side, on a little one block street called Colin P. Kelly Jr. Street, which runs between Townsend and Branham. Um, I live on the ninth floor. My apartment faces the right field line light tower at the Giants ballpark, and it's really, really bright. Um, and it has been my experience that after night games, the Giants just don't turn the lights off. Um, it's really hard to sleep with these bright lights on. Um, and it prevents one from sitting in one's living room and watching TV or reading if there's not a game going on, but they have the lights on, which they often do. Um, I don't know why they are keeping the lights on the way they are, but they have their own business reasons for it. But I think it's not consistent with the provisions of Exhibit F. 
and that there is really a light nuisance being caused to the neighbors i wasn't involved in the preparation of negotiation of the ground lease but it looks like it's the public and the neighbors that the port was looking to protect with these provisions and i have been communicating with the giants for this for about a year i don't think it's gotten better in fact i think it's gotten worse and i think it's gotten worse over the years um, for example last week the giants on thursday had a day off the lights were on all night on Friday, they had a night game, which ended reasonably early. The lights were on all night. Saturday night, all night. Sunday night, all night. Last night, all night. I should mention that I am a Giants fan. I was at the earthquake game. I was at the last game in the 2021 series with the Dodgers. So I'm not anti-Giants, but I think they could be better neighbors and keep the lights turned off. There is a neighbor in my building, Katrina, K-A-T-R-I-N-A. Radojevic, R-A-D-O-J-E-V-I-C, who lives on the 10th floor, who can't be here today, but asked that I inform the commissioners that her family is being bothered by the lights. Her husband had a medical thank, procedure. Thank you. Thank, thank you, thank you thank so you. much. Your, your time has uh, passed, but I do hope that um, through the, in, the executive director, um, we can look into this matter for you. I appreciate so, that. Thank Mike, you. Mike, can we follow up with Mr. Conrad? Yes, we can follow up. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. Thank you thank for your you. time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sam Sohol. Hello, Commissioners. Uh, my name is Sam Sohol. So, oh, um, we uh, run a double-decker bus company with the second uh, company in San Francisco. Big Bus is the other one. So we run our buses uh, from uh, Fisherman's Wharf uh, to uh, Alcatraz, that area, and, and the Union Square. So basically, we've been here for 15 years, and everything was fine until recently. We don't know, because I haven't attended any of the meetings, what transpired. Basically, they told, uh, told us, you can't come here, you can't do your business here. And we want some kind of a, a feedback, want a response on what we need to do, wh what rules we break in, and uh, if we can kind of work with them, the port, um, we'd like some kind of guidance. That's really what, we, what I'm here for. Okay, again, I will ask our acting executive director to follow up with you. If you could please give him your information. And now or later on? Now. Right now is fine. Now. We'll be happy to do that. Is there any other public comment in the room? Seeing none, Corey, do we have anyone on the phone? At this time, there is no one on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thank you. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Jenica, next item, please. Item 9A is the executive director's report. Oops. And for callers who wish to make public comments on this item, please dial star 3 to raise your hand to comment. Good afternoon, commissioners, uh, members of the public and port staff. I'm Elaine Forbes, the executive director. And today I've asked our uh, chief operating officer, Mike Martin, to continue to serve as acting port director. I was away last week on vacation, and Michael worked with port staff uh, to prepare the packet for the commission today and the public. So I've asked him to continue his duties um, and to serve today. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll turn it over to Mr. Martin. Thank you, Executive Director Forbes. Uh, let's get this all set up. 
Uh, good afternoon, President Brandon and commissioners, port staff and members of the public. I'm Michael Martin, the Assistant Director of the Port of San Francisco. I'm very happy to be here to give you updates on key port strategies on behalf of our Executive Director. First, I want to inform you uh, that there was an unfortunate fire in the early morning on Saturday, September 2nd at Islaeus Landing. The fire, unfortunately, essentially destroyed um, all of the uh, operational materials for Kayaks Unlimited. Um, Kayaks Unlimited is a tenant that is a nonprofit that partners with Bayview groups to share and encourage the love of water recreation. This is a devastating loss for the port and the city and the Bayview. Um, thankfully, Kayaks Unlimited would like to rebuild, but unfortunately, it's going to be a challenge financially for them. So uh, port staff plans to work with them to understand the path forward, and we look forward to coming back to you and sharing ideas in the future regarding how uh, the port can support their hope for rebirth and uh, reassumption of these important uh, activities. Now I'm immediately turning to economic recovery and growth. The port will continue to be very busy in September and October. First, we are anticipating a second successful year of the Portola Music Festival at Pier 80. The music festival will welcome approximately 35,000 electronic dance music fans each day on September 30th and October 1st. This was a very successful event last year, and we look, again to look forward again to supporting welcoming people back to our vibrant waterfront. The Portola Music Festival is also providing jobs and retail opportunities to local vendors, specifically from our District 10 community. A job fair produced for the event supporting our Bayview community will be held on September 27th from 3 to 7 p.m. at the Port's Midway. We are also ready to welcome thousands to our waterfront for Fleet Week, whether it's the parade of ships, the air show over our bay, or ship tours at our maritime berths, the port is the best way to experience Fleet Week 2023. The public should visit fleetweeksf.org for more information, and we look forward to seeing everyone on our waterfront for this spectacular event from October 2nd through the 10th. I want to highlight the park market at Crane Cove, which is a repeating event featuring local makers, food and drinks, activities, and musicians all nestled in our beloved Southern Waterfront Park, Crane Cove Park. 5,000 attendees joined us for the September event. The event offered free paddle boarding provided by Dog Patch Paddle, which quickly filled up and was another success. The next event is the Trick or Treat Market that will take place on October 28th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. It will be a fun opportunity for people to wear costumes, trick or treat, and explore Halloween activities and crafts. I hope you can enjoy the October event. In our Fisherman's Wharf neighborhood, I'm happy to report that only a few months into intentional activations through our partnership with the Fisherman's Wharf CBD, we have seen locals and visitors alike flock to the historic Crab Wheel Plaza to listen to live music, patronize our tenants, and enjoy themselves a pier party at the wharf. Pier party at the wharf and the free performances will continue every Friday and Saturday from 2 to 6 p.m. until September 30th, and we definitely hope to see our locals there. It continues to be exciting that as we continue to see the rebirth of our waterfront, that we can bring thousands for all of these special events at different times and serving different communities again and again. We also have exciting news uh, with leasing. Port staff is nearing a recommendation for a new tenant in the former butterfly space at Pier 33 and a half. In July 2022, the Port Commission adopted a new broker policy to fill targeted vacancies at Pier 33 and a half and Ferry Plaza East. Port staff selected Cushman and Wakefield as the listing broker, and the contract was signed in January 2023. Marketing materials were developed, and which were sent to a variety of industry organizations and nearly 1,000 restaurant operators. 
A call for offer on July 28th resulted in four offers being received. The offers were reviewed by Cushman, who provided his recommendation of the top two candidates based on the Port Commission's approved criteria. The Port Scoring Panel met on August 31st to review the offers and the broker's recommendation. Over the next few weeks, the Scoring Panel will be conducting interviews to confirm the information supporting the recommendation with the goal of coming back to the Commission in October with an information item detailing the staff's recommendation of the most qualified proposal. We look forward to this discussion and the prospect of activating an empty storefront while also informing the kickoff of the broker-managed offerings of the Fisherman's Wharf restaurants that are currently vacant coming soon. More good news for our tenants in Fisherman's Wharf while we explore bringing attractions to the neighborhood in time for the Asia-Pacific Economic Coordination Cooperation Summit that we expect in November to bring over 20 heads of economies to our city. We've received a special event application from the uh, SkyStar Ferris Wheel to potentially move that from Golden Gate Park to our waterfront in time to celebrate APEC in November. We're working closely with the project sponsor, the Recreation and the Park Department, and BCDC to review the application and the proposal to see if we can achieve a permit on this timeline. Uh, we plan to include this item in an APEC update to the Northern Advisory Committee on September 20th, and then we'll come back to the Port Commission October meeting to detail what we hope is a successful path towards permitting this special event. So, you know, typically we won't talk about something until it's happening, but with such short amount of time and with all the excitement that's growing around the APEC, we wanted to give you a heads up heading into that. Um, as you can see from our report, Port economic recovery and growth tactics are working, and we are honored to support our small businesses and tenants in trying to bring the city and the port forward. Now turning to resilience. For this month's resilience update, I am pleased to spotlight progress with one of the Embarcadero early projects. In late August, the Waterfront Resilience Program team began a geotechnical investigation at the Ferry Building. This work is gathering critical information about the state of the seawall beneath this iconic building. The geotechnical data will support engineering and planning work to defend the ferry building from risks of earthquake and flooding. This work is being carried out as one of the ferry building seawall and substructure earthquake reliability project. Excuse me, that's one part of the ferry building seawall and substructure earthquake reliability project. One of the 23 identified Embarcadero early projects that were developed out of extensive risk assessment work by the Waterfront Resilience Plan including the Embarcadero Seawall Multi-Hazard Risk Assessment and work conducted with the cooperation of the Department of Emergency Management. Now turning to equity, we have a diversity, equity, and inclusion programmatic milestone update for you today. In 2016, we integrated equity as a core port value and added explicit equity commitments to the port's strategic plan. Again in 2020, the port worked hard to establish the Racial Equity Action Plan, also known as the REAP, and submit it to the Office of Racial Equity as required under the city policies. As outlined in the REAP, we came together to move our organization toward a culture of inclusion, belonging, and excellence with the clear goal of becoming an anti-racist organization and a healthier place to work. Now, three years into the REAP work, the port is proud of the accomplishments we've made thus far and excited about where we are headed for this fiscal year. Now, I am happy to introduce Tony Autry, the port's diversity, equity, and opportunity manager, who's been leading this work on behalf of the port to provide a more detailed update about these latest milestones. Tony, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, President Brandon, Vice President Adams, Assistant Director Martin, Director Forbes, and members of the public. 
As mentioned, my name is Tony Autry and I serve as a diversity, equity, and opportunity manager. And today I'm pleased to um, provide you with a report on the diversity, equity, and inclusion program. So here is an agenda of the areas that I'll cover in my presentation, uh, which will include spending some time on covering our efforts last year and a look into how we are working to deepen our impact with the prioritization and implementation of our racial equity action plan, which I'll refer to as the REAP uh, for this fiscal year. I'll start with providing a high-level overview of the 2022 REAP goals. Last year, we increased our external focus with implementing actions from contracts, leasing, and parks and open space. The importance of the communities that we serve led us to amplify our efforts to connect resilient communities to the waterfront open space and begin generational work to ensure equal access and opportunities for all. Additionally, last year, our internal facing actions focused on employee identified areas of improvement, which are where areas which are areas where employees have indicated equity issues exist and need to be addressed. For 2022, our focus was to begin work that will, over time, lead our organization to go beyond the standards of fair and equitable discipline by instituting our proactive, strength-based approach to coach and support employees as well as expand the diversity of our applicant pool for recruitments and retain talent by removing barriers to promotion and training opportunities. Before I go over the, slide, over the graph on this slide, there's important context for you to have. In year one of REAP, impl REAP implementation, we selected short-term goals that could provide small wins for our organization to build momentum that we could leverage for year two. And in year two, we shifted our focus to mid and long-term goals that we knew we had to begin to start progressing towards advancing racial equity. With that said, we did not expect to have all actions completed. For our goals implemented in 2022, we completed a little more than half. Of the 30 actions which are inclusive of carryover actions from 2021, 12 actions are at 100% completion. Nine actions are at a range of 75 to 90% towards being completed. Seven actions are at a range of 25 to 50% towards completion. And the remaining two actions are at a range of zero to 10% completion. These two actions are from the boards and commission section of the REAP and did not progress due to transition of staff roles. We are prepared to continue implementing the remaining 18 actions not yet completed through June 30th, 2024. We made notable accomplishments in 2022, and I've included some on this slide to highlight. We hired a consultant, OPER2, a WBE LBE who curated racial equity training for port staff. The foundational training was the first step to promote a shared understanding of what equity is and why racial equity is important and how it benefits us all. 
To support the development of our hiring pipeline, the port created Rising Tides, which stands for Rising Through Investment, Dedication, Engagement, and Support. This is a mentor and training program to attract, train, and employ black, indigenous, and other young people of color between the ages of 15 to 25. By adding a mentorship component and carefully selecting experiences through field trips and other hands-on learning opportunities, Rising Tides has high school and college-age interns, has exposed high school and college-age interns to careers aligned with port business lines. Port staff work collaboratively with various partners that include academic institutions, CBOs, and city departments to achieve a quality internship which centers equity and the intern experience. Additionally, I'd like to highlight the increased spending with women and minority-owned businesses Port staff intentionally sought out minority-owned businesses to support port events and has proudly partnered with several small businesses, many of which are from District 10, such as Bouge Cali, Chef Kevin Gourmet Catering, Into Action, Gumbo Social, IRML Consulting, Senor Sig, Talio Coffee, Your All Day Everyday Janitorial Service, Yvonne Southern Sweets, Yes Pudding, among others. And last of our highlighted accomplishments, certainly not least, in 2021, the Port proudly co-sponsored the inaugural Juneteenth on the Waterfront event. And the turnout was great. The Port continued to deepen its support of BIPOC-owned businesses, helping to advance racial equity by sponsoring pop-ups on the plaza. This is a quarterly event series that features a local Black-owned business that features local Black-owned businesses participating in our partner, Foodwise's Building Equity Program. This event series takes place at the Embarcadero Ferry Terminal Plaza and is free to the public. Past events include the Harvest Festival, which took place fall of last year, Black Women Makers, which happened this spring, and the largely successful third annual Juneteenth on the Waterfront, which is where these photos are from. There is an upcoming event on September 23rd, so that's a shameless plug if you want to enjoy uh, such an event in person. Pop-Ups on the Plaza is proudly funded in partnership with the San Francisco Human Rights Commission Dream Keepers Initiative, which is an intergenerational effort that aims to ensure San Francisco's diverse black communities are experiencing joy feelings of safety, advancing educationally and economically, are holistically healthy and thriving. It is important to note that the impetus for this event series is attributed to Mayor Breed and our very own Port Commission President, Kimberly Brandon. Thank you for your vision and your advocacy for equity along our waterfront, President Brandon. Entering our third year of REAP implementation has left us with direct experience into what's working and producing desired outcomes and what can be improved. Based on feedback from the port's equity champions and those closest to this work, we've made improvements to the DEI program shown on this slide. No one said it would be easy. This work can be hard. And pre to prevent staff burnout, 
and to have a mechanism to bring in new ideas and fresh perspectives, we have instituted term limits for our equity champions. This also provides a chance for all staff to take part in the work to make the port a more equitable organization. Additionally, when we developed our racial equity action plan, our implementation schedule followed a calendar year. However, it was soon observed that with operating on a calendar year, we were not well positioned to participate in budget planning to ensure adequate resources for our future equity efforts. Our implementation schedule will now follow the fiscal year calendar beginning with this year. And lastly, there has been expressed desire to have more support and awareness from staff at every level into the racial equity work that is underway. We know that increased employee engagement leads to a better work culture and supports interpersonal relationships. There will be several intentional efforts to create spaces for collaboration and in-person engagement later this year. Moreover, as we work to deepen our impact, we have also narrowed our focus to these three areas listed on this slide. Hiring and promotion. We want to diversify our applicant pool to achieve racial diversity within our organization. And for promotions, we aim to remove barriers and to institute supports and resources for staff to compete for promotive opportunities. Data. We want to increase transparency and use data as a tool to reveal disparities and draw accurate conclusions. We will improve the use of our data to make better informed decisions as well. We are also ready to be accountable for the efforts of our outcomes. Psychological safety. Psychological safety is the foundation to inclusion. And it is the shared belief held by members of a team that it is okay to take risks, to express their ideas and concerns, to speak up with questions, and to admit mistakes, all without fear of negative consequences. We want to promote psychological safety by normalizing difficult and honest conversations among peers and between staff and their supervisors to create safe spaces. Since the start of implementing the REAP, in 2021, we have placed a lot of efforts into changing the culture of our organization, and with lowering risk and increasing trust, we aim to foster a department that not only sees our employees, but gives them voice as well. Now on to how we prioritize our REAP goals for this fiscal year. We know collaboration is key to our equity work, and we take every opportunity to bring a diversity of people and perspectives to the table when possible. Representatives of deputy directors and equity champions of all divisions participated throughout each phase of our process. Our approach provided a way for staff from every level of the organization to have equal and direct access to decision making. The series of engagements aimed to support building a strong collaborative culture within our organization that spans across divisions provided an effective alternative to top-down decision-making, which was appropriate for this project. The success of reaching each milestone relied heavily on teamwork, communication, and a shared vision. As a result of this collaborative approach and process, there is a greater degree of familiarity and engagement with the REAP and a sense of connectivity to the racial equity work among staff. 
Here are the factors shown on this slide that we use to prioritize our fiscal year 23-24 REAP goals. We prioritize actions that support hiring and promotion, data, and psychological safety. Our goal is to deepen our impact, so our focus is on high-impact actions this fiscal year. Our equity work has been embraced by many, and there are efforts to advance racial equity that are not presently in our REAP, so we included new actions as well. And then there are actions required of all city departments that we must implement. So we included and prioritized those. Since we will continue the work we began on REAP goals from 2022 that are still in progress, our collaborative REAP selection process resulted in prioritizing 14 actions to implement as our fiscal, as our 23-24 fiscal year goals. The REAP goals we have prioritized are believed to have a high impact and are a mix of actions that we believe are a range of easy, moderate, and challenging levels uh, of effort to implement. This slide reflects the first half of our fiscal year 23-24 goals. The majority of these actions are geared towards supporting hiring and promotion, such as providing resources and training to staff to learn how to navigate through the city smart recruiter website to apply for employment opportunities, and an effort that will aim to expand our outreach by partnering with local educational institutions and professional affiliations for people of color to attract and increase racial diversity within our hiring pools. As mentioned when covering the last slide, we have incorporated new actions and plan to update and publish a new version of our racial equity action plan, which will be made available to the public. Here is the second half of our goals for this fiscal year, and you'll see that the Waterfront Resilience Program equity efforts are a welcomed addition to our REAP, as well as continued efforts in the area of contracts. As I conclude my presentation, I want to share that the work that I represent is not the work of one. It is the work of many. Racial equity work is everyone's job, and I'm proud to say that both leadership and my colleagues have stepped up and rolled up their sleeves to support the advancement of racial equity. When we first developed this, this diversity, equity, and inclusion program, we started with nothing but a vision. We didn't know if we were building the right infrastructure, but we knew that this was something that we needed to do, not because we had to, but because it is the right thing to do. We are starting to feel intangible changes, which is an indication that what we are doing is working and it is beginning to shift our culture towards transformational change. We were and still are committed to doing whatever it takes to create a more equitable, more equitable outcomes for not only our staff, but also for the communities we serve. We still have a long way to go and achieving equity may take a lifetime of work, but we have begun to go beyond words and into meaningful action. Our journey to become a more equitable organization continues. Thank you, I'm available for any questions you may have. Thank you, Tony, great report. 
and with that, we conclude the executive director's report. So we welcome your comments and feedback. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Is there any public comment in the room? Alice. Good afternoon, um, commissioners. I'm Alice Rogers, and I just want to comment on this excellent report that we just had. The only thing that I think that was missing, um, I had the honor of um, working on your waterfront land use plan update, which also had a huge diversity um, goal and aspiration. And when I was strolling down the Embarcadero two or three or four weeks ago, um, we needed a video of what was going on in the waterfront because there was this huge um, event with a black and Filipino food thing and next door was a lowrider thing and the street was filled with amazing cars and the, the farmer's market was completely bustling um, with everybody and I think that would have just um, shown that what was just said is absolutely in action and I couldn't have been more excited. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any other public comment in the room? Corey, do we have anyone on the phone? At this time, there is no one on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Lee? Oh, I'm first again. Uh, great report uh, shows that the staff works very hard here. I just have a couple of comments um, on the uh, music festivals coming up, uh, which I think it's a great thing because every time we struggle, entertainment seems to be the, the draw in most communities. Um, I just want to uh, make sure this time around um, that staff uh, really pays attention to public safety. Uh, you know, crowd control because those kids could get a little uh, excited, you know, and so I think uh, public safety should be a, a number one issue on port. Uh, that's how it was for me on Entertainment Commission. Um, also, the, the REAP program is very uh, great, and I'm just wondering um, how do you do your outreach? How do you get more uh, people involved? Because I know in, in D10, Vit uh, Visitation Valley, and Bayview, there's a lot of AAPI nonprofits there that would probably like to join up if, if they don't already know but I'm, I'm you know just curious how you uh, do your outreach for that uh, through the various uh, staff that do community engagement um, we tap into our existing advisory boards our existing um, relationships with community stakeholders to try and expand and leverage those relationships to uh, include new ones. So definitely by word of mouth and we are doing more to uh, reach folks who don't always have access just to simply uh, our website. Um, so uh, through our social media campaigns that we have planned, um, we are always open and willing to partner. So. Uh, some of the ways that we've been doing that has been just leveraging our existing relationships. Okay, great. If you need any help, let me know. I'd like okay. to help you promote. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Harrington. Uh, yes, thanks very much for the reports. The, the Kayaks Unlimited, that is very unfortunate, and I hope we can help them as much as possible. Uh, the Ferris wheel, somebody mentioned that to me last week, and I thought, what are you talking about? Where, where are we talking about putting a Ferris wheel? 
uh, in the triangle parking lot That's what I figured. Uh, at the, uh, the eastern end of the parking lot. Okay. I guess good. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and Ms. Autry, thank you very much for, for your report. The things like t the TIDES initiative and things are, are great. You had mentioned uh, um, intangible results, and you'd also mentioned one of, the, one of the outreach things is data, and I, I'm a fan of that too. Uh, do you have reports that actually can, can start to talk more about um, the changes that are happening in recruitment and retention and promotion and, and kind of the equity levels at different levels of staffing in the organization that you could provide to the commission? We don't at this time. So this year, as we talked about, trying to really deepen our impact is really taking a step back and examining what the data says, um, how the data says we're actually doing. And so I think if not now, certainly in the near future, um, we may have those, we should have those reports available. Um, in terms of the intangible uh, uh, changes that we are starting to feel, uh, we do do an annual survey of our staff uh, to get a, like to a have a climate kind of survey? Yeah, just to have um, our finger on the pulse of uh, how folks are receiving this uh, equity. Uh, work and so um, as it is right now I'm working with a consultant to kind of analyze all of the survey responses so that we have a sense of where we are where we need to do better where we need to do more of and so that should also be available relatively soon that would be great and I'm sure a chunk of it is internal but if there's things that are appropriate for the Commission we'd love to see whatever you okay. have thank you thank you Commissioner Gilman um, Thank you so much, Mike, for the report. Um, it's sort of a mixture of stuff from the equity report and just so much is happening on the waterfront. Um, I, I had the opportunity to go to the Juneteenth celebration. It was packed. I got there at like 11 and like half the booths were sold out. So I just want to say like really great work and then to see almost three weeks later the events on Piers 3032 with the Filipino and um, Latinx um, food trucks and the cars was just really, really great. So I think it's great when we can take our equity work both internally for our own staff so they feel more welcomed, included, can have internal promotion, and then also uplift that and bring that to, out to the community. So I really want to commend you, um, Tony, for all your efforts you're doing on this. It's really, really great. Um, and then, um, like, I'm super excited about Fleet Week. Commissioner Lee and I had the opportunity to go to the kickoff last night. I think it's going to be a really great event. Um, there's even a basketball tournament happening between the Academy of Art um, and, the, I guess, seamen um, or naval people um, at Piers 3032. So just love the, the activation of everything. Um, you know, just one aha moment. If we're going to put, if we're going to have the Ferris wheel at the little triangle, I really hope that we can work with SFPD, ABC, and the Department of Public Health to really do massive enforcement on illegal vending. That's a hub for it, so maybe activating that space will help mitigate some of that, but I would hate to see that behavior happening simultaneously when we have foreign guests, visitors, and dignitaries here in um, San Francisco. So I wanted to thank you for that report. Um, and I also just wanted to take a minute. Um, I'm hoping that we can close today's meeting in, in, in memoriam to Peter DeLuca. Born in North Beach in February of 1940, um, Peter passed away um, at the age of 82 um, two weeks ago Saturday. Peter's family was iconic here in San Francisco. Um, his auntie Rose Pistola opened the original restaurant in North Beach. 
and Peter was passed from the bar at the original wash bag at the age of five when his auntie was watching him and he worked there. He called his, among his friends Lawrence Ferngetting. He worked for Francis Ford Coppola at Zotrope Cafe, for Flicka McGuire, who owns Piers 23 and Sweeties. Peter was dubbed the mayor of North Beach by David Talbot, and he is um, multiple decades-long members of the Bayview Boat Club, which will be hosting his celebration of life in October. And I hope we can close the Port Commission, just like the Board of Supervisors did today, in, in memoriam for Peter DeLuca. Thank you. Thank you. Vice President Adams. First of all, I want to say uh, to Deputy Director, Acting Director Mike, a uh, very stellar report. Uh, Tony on the diversity and the equity and inclusion, uh, you knocked it out the part. And I want to say a really a big shout out to uh, President Brandon, who's made it her lifelong mission and commitment for diversity and inclusion. She lives it and she wears it on her shoulders and her sleeves. Um, it's great about uh, Fleet Week, and I want to say a special shout out to uh, Director Forrest. I'm glad that uh, you were able to get away and get a break to. Uh, recharge your batteries, it's, it's important to uh, have that balance. And then I want to say a special thank you to my commissioners. I've missed quite a few meetings with President Brandon, uh, Commissioner Gilman, Harrington, and Steve Lee. I couldn't have made it without you. Uh, you know, we uh, <clears throat> I've been involved in our West Coast negotiations as president of the IOW, and we finally got done with our West Coast contract coverance uh, uh, 29 West Coast ports and uh, and 13 months of negotiations, very contentious with all the shipping companies, and we were able to get by without us shutting down the West Coast and having a major strike. Everyone knows the IOW. We're a very very militant union, and we will use our power when we have to. And there's times that we've struck, but at this time we were able to get a uh, an agreement. And I want to say a special shout out to President Biden who allowed us to go to the the process of the collecting bargaining process and a special shout out to uh, Secretary uh, Labor, Julie Sue, who came in at the end and made sure that we were able uh, to get an agreement. Um, right after that, we had the fire in Maui. And if you know in Maui, uh, most of the people in Maui, they're a member of the IOW, all the hotels, stores, uh, the ports in Maui, those were our members. A lot of our members are still missing. I want to thank the president, the first lady, for visiting. But I want to say a special shout out to our mayor. We were sending about 20 containers over to Maui. If you know anything about Hawaii, everything has to go by ship. And we were able to send 20 containers. Uh, mayor Bree got behind it. A special shout out to our executive director. We were able to send containers full of water, blankets, and supplies to the people of the great state of uh, Maui, uh, we know that it's probably going to be three or four years to rebuild Maui. Um, just recently talked to the governor. They're planning on opening up Maui next month because, as you know, Hawaii depends on tourism. And uh, some of the hotels will open up, and they want to try to kickstart their economy. But still, it is a lot of work to go. So we appreciate all the support and that. And then uh, last week, uh, we had a special invitation to the White House we were the guests of the President Biden, and uh, he wanted to thank our, our union, not only for the supply chain, but getting through 13 months of negotiations in the West Coast ports. Uh, it was very, very, very a surreal moment to think that 
the man whose shoulders the world depends on was able to take the time out to acknowledge the IOW and the Pacific uh, Maritime Association and that we were able to get a, a contract. So we have been busy, but like I said, I couldn't have done that without the support of my fellow commissioners. And I just want to thank you for allowing me to do the work that I have to do, which is tireless and relentless and nobody ever tells you thank you, but you know you're doing it for the membership of your union, just like being a poor commissioner. We do it for the love of this community. So to my fellow commissioners, thank you so much. I couldn't have made it without you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for the report, a very full report and um, a lot of great stuff happening along the waterfront. Really sorry to hear about Kayaks Unlimited and whatever we can do to help uh, would be great because it's a great resource for the community. It's really great to hear about the activation at Pier 70, Crane Cove Park, Fisherman's Wharf, and then Fleet Week is like the icing on the cake. There's gonna, we, we are at really doing our job of bringing people to the waterfront and activating the waterfront and helping the economic recovery of San Francisco. So I really want to thank the staff for everything you're doing to, to create all of these opportunities for um, people to enjoy the waterfront. And Tony, you did an excellent job. Um, really appreciate that. I, was, I saw um, Christine Farron from Foodwise. Who, and I saw her right before I came in, and she just raved about Tony and how easy it is to work with her and how she now feels connected to the, to the port. She said the port was just an entity and no one, you know, she didn't know anyone. But now that she works with Tony, she feels engaged. And, and so you, you are really making a difference. And I, and I know it's not easy. Change is not easy. But you are doing it so smoothly and, and always with a smile. And you have your team and you have your committee. And I just want to thank all of you because you're doing an excellent job. So thank you. Thank you. Jenica, next item, please. Item 10A is an informational presentation on one, phase one revised budget, two, contribution of port capital, Three, preview of final budget and miscellaneous items for the Mission Rock project at Seawall Lot 337, bounded by China Basin Channel, 3rd Street, Mission Rock Street, and San Francisco Bay. For callers who wish to make public comments on this item, please dial star 3 to raise your hand to comment. Commissioners, uh, if I may, I might make a few framing comments before I hand things over to Josh Keen and our Mission Rock team. Um, so. Items 10A and 10B are related, um, and uh, 10B is an is a approval to move forward on uh, the, the efforts needed to issue bonds, which you've approved twice already, um, and that's a key strategy for us to continue to pay back the costs of the infrastructure that are allowing us to see those buildings rise out of, of Mission Rock, and that goal is to pay down those costs as soon as possible in hopes that we'll save more of the land value later to eventually get some rent. But we wanted to agendize 10A because we wanted you to have this context of the situation with the budget and how we're projecting the budget to go over the currently approved budget and the dynamics around that so we can have a dialogue about that here. Our goal will be to take back your feedback and your questions 
um, so we can do further analysis and come back in October to try to describe for you not only the answers to your questions, but a better idea of the impacts to the potential budget increase in terms of future phases and the future of the project. So this is really the sort of a step one of the conversation, but we also wanted to make sure you understood the interrelationship of 10B, the bonds issuance. So you'll hear some of the bonds talk in 10A, but we're still going to do a short presentation on 10B. I just wanted to frame that for you. Um, but ultimately, I think all of it will be hearing you out and we'll be coming back in October, hopefully, with, with some more clarity as to the things that we need more clarity about. Um, so I just wanted to frame that a little bit in terms of the two items, but um, now I'd love to hand it over to Josh to take it from here. Great. Thank you, Mike. And good afternoon, Commissioners. Josh Keen, Assistant Deputy Director of Development. Um, before I jump into this, I would like to frame this probably as three parts, even though there's going to be a specific agenda, which is really to highlight talking about the, the activation on the waterfront, but the real success of Mission Rock, um, then starting to really discuss some of the challenges, but then also the next is going to be a preview of actual solutions and next steps and successes we're looking forward to over the next 12 months and longer. Um, following sections, which is going to be an overall project update. Um, a lot of you will have seen the, the, the visuals yourself, but we just want to always make sure we're, we're showing what's happening down there. It's very exciting. Um, and then to moving into some of the challenges, specifically the phase one budget um, expected overrun that Mike was talking about. And more specifically with that today, it's going to be broken down into a portion of that, which is about half of it is tied into the increase of the city costs and the port costs and our consultant costs that are tied into the overall project, but it's also a component of the project budget itself. Um, and as, as Mike was mentioning about the bonds, we have two concepts we wanted to talk about just briefly, and these are part of our solutions, which is one is the concept of port capital, which will be very briefly touched on. And then the bonds are just going to be very briefly touched on to be covered in detail in uh, item 10B. Um, and then most importantly also, we've got some next immediate steps, and we, we haven't done a Mission Rock uh, update in a while, so I also want to let you know about all of the items coming your way this year and into next year. There, there's a lot to look forward to, so we will not be going uh, so far in between on updates, whether it's the budget or anything going forward, as you'll see towards the end. Uh, so just as a quick recap, I'm um, not going to go into the entire project because we're focused on phase one today. But as most are familiar, it's comprised of four vertical parcels, two of which are housing um, and two of which are commercial buildings. And so a significant amount of, of housing being delivered, 537 units, 199 of those affordable, plus commercial tenants. Because this is truly intended to be a neighborhood, there is a significant amount of ground floor retail that's been set aside. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit. We've actually had some real success in the lease up immediate just recently and coming forward uh, with respect to the, the retail. And then one of the hallmarks of this from a visual perspective is the construction of China Basin Park, which the majority of that is under construction now. Um, and that's a five-acre park um, that will be there to support the actual development, but also to be a publicly accessible park, not just for the development, of course. Um, what's happening outside of the vertical side is making significant process or progress on the phase one acceptance, the horizontal acceptance, which we'll touch, touch on later, is one of the kind of the key drivers of where these costs are coming from. Um, we're expecting that to happen next year as early as Q1, but most likely probably closer to the mid, mid, middle of 2024. So just want to touch on a couple of the 
you know, taking the project back from the beginning, just there's a series of these milestones that are in the report. Uh, I just want to hit on a couple of these, which really the phase one budget was approved in 2019 that included also this, uh, the street improvement permit submittal. In 2020, which was a huge, huge progress year for the project, this is when uh, the four uh, parcel leases for all four of those buildings were signed, which is a really key aspect of the success of this project, is even though during COVID, these leases are getting signed, and the ability and the decision to actually move forward with construction on all four at the same time is where what, what allows us to be in the position we are today, which is to actually open the entire phase almost at the same time rather than staggering it out. 2021 had con continuation of the horizontal progress um, and vertical construction began on, um, on parcel B. And then that was the first time we had actually issued the bonds was in the early part of that year. So the series 20, uh, 2021A bonds netted about $44 million to the project. We came back about two years ago. That was the phase one budget approval. That's when the first increase to the budget came forward. Um, but then later that year also we had more bonds coming into the project, bringing it almost to $100 million of proceeds to offset these phase one costs. In, phase, in 2022, uh, the uh, parcel F uh, began under construction. But also this is kind of the tying into the future phases. The developer submitted uh, the phase two application, which is the basis of design for the future phase two, which we will talk about later as being it's challenged at the moment, but we're working on pathways forward on that. Um, and then I will show these on the, the actual buildings uh, updates themselves, but we did receive uh, certi temporary certificates of occupancy for three of the four of these, um, including the and a completion of the district energy and black water treatment plants. Um, as you all may recall, we also took tied into that uh, the Blackwater treatment plant. We brought forward a very novel and unique uh, recycled water agreement, purchase agreement for that. So it was a quick refresh, um, kind of the hallmark, or the visual hallmark that you see when you're in uh, watching any Giants game is Parcel G, which is Visa's headquarters. That received its temporary certificate of occupancy earlier this year. Uh, Visa is currently underway building out the interior for that. You can imagine there's a lot with all 13 stories and 300,000 square feet of space. Um, but that's actually, Visa is actually expected to occupy as early as 2024. So actually going to have people working there, going to work in addition to uh, Parcel A, which received its TCO in May and is already welcoming residents, um, including market rate residents and just recently starting the actual uh, BMR occupants have actually started to move into the building too. So, um, and they, the, both of those buildings have office space and ground floor retail. Uh, parcel B, which currently is vacant, uh, the team is working, this is for life science or other tech. Um, this received its temporary certificate of occupancy in June 2023. The team is actively marketing this and discussing in negotiations for a tenant to take either the whole building or a sizable portion of that. Um, no progress, no, no formal update yet, but that's something we're really looking forward to. Uh, three of the ground floor retail leases, though, have actually signed. Those were actually uh, made the press fairly recently. Um, so we've got Ike's Love and Sandwiches, Blades, which is a barber shop, and then Lux Fit, which is a gym. So that's super exciting uh, in the retail market right now. It's very, very good interest and actually expecting to announce more in the future. And then lastly, uh, on the vertical parcels is parcel F, which is following a little bit behind. Uh, that's by design. 
So that will be expecting to have its temporary certificate of occupancy next year. Um, that's going to have 254 residential units, 97 of those will be affordable units. The timing on this is, is nice with the lease up of parcel A, which we have been looking at about a 12 month lease up period for that building. The thought is this is going to line up nicely so they're not competing against each other. As soon as that building is leased up, we're ready to move into parcel F. Um, we've actually started discussions with the Mayor's Office of Housing to make sure that we're starting that process early so that we can actually be ready to go when it happens this year. Um, and then as the aforementioned China Basin Park, which uh, similar to Parcel F, is uh, it, it will be delivered in 2024. So that's the five-acre park, uh, the inland portion, which is the majority of this. Um, one of the budget issues that we experienced in the last one was unlike Pier 70, where it was a physically challenged, obviously, and financially challenged project, we deferred the construction of the park, the public park in the phase one there. We moved this one forward into the phase one, um, which means you put a lot of the horizontal costs up front, uh, but it's really for the overall benefit of the project so that we're not building the park later down the road. So even though it was a significant investment, we feel it's the right one for the project. Uh, as I'll preview later, and you've heard many times, we are negotiating the parks management agreement, which is a lease. Um, so that will be for the actual management of the park. Uh, the goal to be to minimize any cost the port will incur. I just want to do a very quick uh, LBE update. As we continue to trend up, we're now clearly over 18% on our way to our 20% goal. So just recently, uh, so we're at 18.28% with a total of 163.48 million awarded in LBE contracts, which is huge success. Uh, so I do now want to talk about some of the challenges before we move into some of the solutions here. Um, there's a, there, we've got a group here from the port and also from Mission Rock Partners if we need to go into any of this information in detail uh, in the question and answer session. Um, so I just want to talk about the high levels on here where we are currently estimating that the total phase one completion cost will be $218 million budget, slightly over that. Now that is projecting out through project completion through next year. So the numbers, the numbers high, but it is expecting the future costs. And uh, Mike mentioned this earlier, and it's kind of why we're doing this today with the bonds is when we go out to the market with the bonds, we need to be fully transparent of what the information and forecasting what we know so that by the time the bonds are sold, we're sharing everything we have out there. And this is why we wanted to make sure we have this information in front of you. We are currently reviewing and everything looks on track as far as it goes, but we're working with the developer to sign off on those port costs and fully expect that that will be part of our October uh, 10th port commission. Uh, today, we'll actually focus a little bit more on the city costs aspect, and that is a component in the line item of soft costs there that I will show in a little bit more, but the projection of port, uh, city staff, and consultants to go through the project into 2024 and early 2025 is just under $20 million. So uh, there's a breakdown on the right of this, which is, is split amongst public works, port staff, the consultants, which the, predominantly are the ports consultants that we're relying upon, uh, and, and then the city attorney who works tirelessly on some of these agreements that are exceptionally complicated. Um, and this is over a series of a period of time, which I'll show on the next slide. I do want to just talk about some of the high-level drivers on this. There's some macroeconomic issues such as interest rates and inflation that are just natural to everybody. Um, there's also some very specific things about Mission Rock, if anyone that's been down there 
there's very unique design and materials. Its location along the waterfront requires different level of resiliency and sea level rise than we normally would have. Um, maybe not the port, but other projects themselves. Um, there's very sophisticated uh, d design functions and materials down there, different types of paving that are non-standard that just add to the delay, the time period of the review of city agencies. Um, one of the other biggest issues that we have is we set these budgets before the permitting process occurs, and then there's changes that are happening after the fact of the permitting, and we are very sympathetic of that. Uh, but it's really hard to, to nail down the number, and that's that's really what we're seeing here today. Um, one of the issues, and this is, you know, when the good side of the bonds and kind of the downside of the bonds is it's a lot of money into the project, but it does cause take a lot of staff review and bringing in outside consultants to help validate all of the costs in a way that's different than the budget. It's actually the, the reporting requirements are significantly higher for, for public financing at this stage, um, and then continually, of course, COVID. Uh, we are seeing less of that now but we are still seeing supply chain issues. The, the labor issue is not as bad as it was there, and we're having less of those. Um, on the other side, it will say we did have, uh, unfortunately, this last year, we had a lot more weather issues than we were previously having. We didn't have the best year as far as that kind of stuff goes. Um, so there's the breakdown of these by percentage. I tried to group them. The other is, is kind of miscellaneous city departments, which would include the SFPUC and the SFMTA. Um, so I want to just kind of show this over time. So, and this is what really the driver on these city costs are and the overall project cost is time. Um, certain things are, you know, certain things there's cost like inflation that's kind of not really time sensitive as far as that goes. But if you look at this starting in 2019, you know, we've got a pretty good burn rate starting in 2021 of three to $4 million per year for these expenses. Every year that that the issues come up or we push things back. And what I mean by pushing it back is the acceptance by the city and the port of the improvements. What those do is those, those, that action effectively stops the clock on the phase one budget, the material levels of that. Um, and so we're looking at a 2024 acceptance. We were hoping it was gonna be earlier, but the, because of some of these issues I mentioned before, so that's one of the macro drivers within the project itself is just time. So for every year, you know, we're talking an extra $4 million. Um, while I mentioned previously, we feel really confident about this projected number, the biggest risk associated with that is time, is if the delay, if there's an additional delay or the acceptance process, which we are not foreseeing, that is a potential risk. But we have the full support of uh, the mayor's office and OEWD and the entire task force. So we've been pretty confident that our schedule is going to hit for next year as far as that goes. Uh, I just also want to be clear that these numbers for 2020, for the rest of 2023, and then following two years after, those are projections. So we consider those pretty conservative. We just wanted to make sure that 2025 is an example. We want to make sure we've got some time to transition off the project if, if it's going a little bit late too. So we do believe contingency was appropriately accounted for in here. Okay, so I'm just going to frame this, this concept right now. Um, it's 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 part it's a concept we have in our development agreement with with mission rock partners and it's the concept of a port capital advance and what it is is it's essentially a project source where the port can make a a voluntary commitment almost like an equity partner uh as a source of the funds and what we're proposing in order to stop some return the developer return and i will explain kind of how this works conceptually this $16.5 million over up to that amount, once the number's there, 
um, we're recommending that we would, we would end up classifying these as poor capital advances. Now, that means the money that we've kind of spent today that's over the budget and the money going forward would be there too. And what that does is it essentially means, it's a little bit, the math is there, but it essentially means the developer is never getting an 18% return on this. In lieu of it, that $16 million, the port is now investing into a return that's essentially 10%. There's some limitations that drop it down to 9% in some instances. Um, so beyond just kind of making this current phase, finding a solution there, it adds significant benefit to future phases, phase two in particular, because we're not carrying over as much of a developer capital burden that needs to be paid off to make the future phase happen. I say that, and we're gonna explain that in October of when we come back, because we're actually modeling this, and I'll, and I'll talk about that, but wanted to introduce this concept to you that um, it, it would be basically, instead of the developer capital, the port would put it a capital contribution, get its own return, um, and as I mentioned, it approves the overall economics, and we will be demonstrating that in October when we come forward with a request to approve that. Um, I touched on this briefly, and Wyatt from our team will, will detail this much more so uh, when we go through, when he goes through the presentation on the bonds themselves next, or after this item. But basically because of the success of the vertical development, uh, directly as a result of that, the value of the property has gone up. And once the value of the property goes up, there's actual increment and value that's been generated that now we can bond against. So what we're looking at is we feel that working with the Office of Public Finance, the current estimate is there may be up to $58 million of additional value that's been created since the last time we went to the bonds. And we're trying to go now to do that. And obviously putting bond performance into the project is better. So even if you sold bonds at 6%, you're stopping the return of an 18% or even in a poor capital scenario, the 10%. So it's always better to sell the bonds um, if you've got, a, if you've got the, the value there. Um, and so we're gonna end up estimating that that will bring about $40 million in net proceeds to the project. Unfortunately, we don't get, the bond market's a little more challenging as, and why it will detail that. So we don't get quite the bang for your buck that we had before because of the interest rate environment, but it's still infinitely better uh, to be doing this from us. Um, and why is this time of the essence? Because basically each month that we can sell these bonds earlier, we're saving the project about five hundred dollars to $600,000 because of the return that stops and that, that there's no, therefore not accumulating that return going forward. So one of the reasons we wanna put all this information and we know it's a lot into the info item is we really believe that the bonds, it's time, time is of the essence to move those forward. Um, but we wanted to make sure this item is putting everything in front of you that we know of today. Um, so speaking of which, the immediate next steps, and this will continue into next year, is right in front of us, this is kind of the action to capture the rest of the value in phase one, which is the budget increase um, and then the associated bonds. But this whole thing works by making the other phases go forward. And some, there's some issues associated with that, such as, hey, if interest rates drop, if the office market increases, these are all macroeconomic factors that could make the phase more feasible on its own. Um, the reality is we're also going to look at other options to what, what, what would an option of the phase two look like? What are phase two alternatives that we could do to create some value going forward? Um, and so we're really just trying to figure that out and, you know, to see things like what, if the interest rates do change, how does this perform overall? How does this make the projects go? The reality is, is that all the money for the port 
it's really in the development of these projects. And once you can get the future phases, the tax benefits and revenues are, are significant. Um, I mentioned that before, and I'll show you in the next slide. We, we've uh, actually, so we've actually engaged a third-party consultant that's going through the model, validating it, and is going to help us run those scenarios. We expect to start having that initial discussion with you in October. That is going to be an ongoing discussion of options and scenarios up until we eventually are ready to do a phase two uh, budget approval. That's not going to happen this year, uh, but the hope is it could happen as soon as next year, depending on how things happen. Uh, so lastly, um, touched on a lot of these. I just want to kind of wrap it up about what to expect from this project in the immediate future and then into next year. So, um, you know, the 10B item, we're you'll see that as, as we're treating that as a standalone because we're asking you to consider that as an informational and action specific to the bonds only. You don't have to, nothing else is being approved as far as that goes to allow us to move forward with that process. So. There are some factors we want to feel comfortable about that the that the budget increase is uh, and the commitment of the port capital, which we're going to bring to you on October 10th, that that's you feel comfortable approving that. And if so, uh, when we come in October 10th, we will be immediately moving forward through the Office of Public Finance with issuing the bonds at the Board of Supervisors um, to price them this year. But there is that approval level right there uh, that we'll be coming back to in October 10th. Uh, the developers also, um, the port and the developer have acknowledged there was a technical error in the negotiation of the parcel lease with respect to the participation in a refinancing scenario. So the port's fully acknowledging of this. We considered a technical cleanup. Um, I mentioned it very briefly in the staff report, but we will bring that to you in October. There are some other uh, requests that the developer is making that consider it to be easier to refinance the project, which adds benefit to the project. Uh, we did not put those in the info item because we are not, we're still betting those as far as that goes, but we would be back then. Um, Commissioner Gilman, I know you had requested before a leasing update on parcel A, so we intend to have that once they, get, once they have numbers. So I don't know if that's in November or December, as soon as it's ready, but it's on our radar to do that. Um, as I mentioned, parcel F, uh, the lease up process, we're engaging that with MOHCD now. Uh, and then the aforementioned park lease and the associated land rights. So. The park lease is its own, but there's also some land rights to manage the other open space areas at, uh, at the point of time when the acceptance process happens. The one I did not put on here, but it's kind of the overall, overall arching one, and we expect that in 2024, it's just a little more forward-looking, is the acceptance process. So that's, that's kind of one of these big drivers, um, but that's going to be in 2024 as far as it goes. So with that, a um, lot of information. I've, I'm here to answer questions. I've also got representatives, uh, some specialists within the port for different questions if you have them, uh, and then the MRP team, including members of the Giants and Tishman Spire. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Seeing none, Corey, is there anyone on the phone? At this time, there is no one on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Gilman. Thank you so much for this report. It is a lot. Um, and I, I feel very comfortable with why the um, pricing costs have increased. They seem in line with other construction or other things that I'm seeing happening with other projects or in the market. I just had one 
question. It's more just to make sure I'm conceptualizing it correctly on the um, port capital advance. Is that like a soft note? Like in a development project, sometimes people will put in a soft note as a placeholder then to either get bought out or have a return or get other financing? Or is it just completely different than that? Well, Wyatt, if I'm off, you can correct me on this one. But generally speaking, it's acting like that. So it's, it's essentially an equity position that we're now investing into the project. And then we will just take the, instead of that hitting the developer capital expenditure as a source, this will be its own source. And like the port now jumps in as a So you're somewhere in the waterfall for when everything correct. happens. What's our position in the waterfall? Uh, that we're evaluating with as if we intend to go on October 10th. So it depends on when we capitalize those and treat those those in there. So th that's what we plan to come in October, and okay. that's why that would be part of our modeling. Okay, thank you. That yeah. answers my question. Yeah, makes sense to me. No, now. and that's part of part of we need a third party consultant to say when does it make sense in the project for the benefit of the project for this to happen. And and, and just remind me because it's in the overall project. It's not tied to a particular building or. It's overall budget. It's overall budget. So what? I, I would be interested when you come back in October, you don't need to answer this now. If I just don't remember um, if there was any public, was there any public finance put towards the affordable units? Just I'm thinking about that only for waterfall position of if there's tax credit investments. I hear I see Tishman shaking their head. No, so there, there wasn't there wasn't any. Um, OK, I, I just wanted to flag that if there was any public funds used for the affordable side of it, they would have a different waterfall position. It, yeah, well, the, the, the vertical construction itself, yeah. which is the, the improvement itself, would have, could have had it, but not for like a subsidy or anything like that associated with the affordable aspect. So the physical structure, okay. it's the hard cost. OK, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Commissioner Lee? Um, <clears throat> it seems like your, your increase is kind of in line with what's going on. I mean, you're looking at about 20, 22% increase in the next few years, which I think is probably within line. Um, do you guys find any, you know, any problems in the future with uh, products, you know, cost of, I mean, uh, availability of materials in the future? Or do you think there's going to be an ample supply? Are we catching up on the supply chain? I would probably turn this over to the MRP team if, if anyone's got anything specific on that. I mean, we, we've, we've for, for the purpose of phase one, that's all been expected in there. So yeah. in future phases, I don't know that that modeling's been done because we're, it's not financially viable yet. So the, to the extent, yeah. we, have, we don't have a, a start date for phase two. So I think the supply yeah, that's chain a question would be on that. key issue. Always time is, is the killer. Yeah. And that's why I'm just wondering when we're ready to start. Should be ample supply, I would think, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, it's not that, not that important. Yeah, no, no I, think I think 20, 22% in two years is probably viable. Yeah, so when we come in October, we do intend to explain how phase two will okay. work. So I will make sure to note that assumption. We will address it there just to how we are or factoring it into our assumptions there. I'm just curious if we, if we let's say went 25% and went more mm -hmm. just to have a cushion in there. That, does that affect the bond at all? I mean, getting no, no, not the bond now because the value is created by. It's not the cost. It's not just the cost that we spent. It's the value of the, the buildings themselves. So, it's how much capacity. What it does is would have an impact on phase two viability uh -huh. because 
we'd have to take out the money for fit to pay off phase one before you go to phase two. So it kind of puts phase one in more of a hole to be recovered before phase two can I see. go forward. So you think 22 is a good number, huh? 2022. I, in this, while we're reviewing it, yes, we're still finalizing our review of those numbers, but from the developer's perspective, that's the numbers they put and everything they put in there as we've gone through the process, things are not flagging. Okay. So, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Harrington. Thank you. And thank you, Josh, for the presentation. Uh, also, thank you to the port staff and the Mission Rock staff for bringing me up to speed on this in the last week or so. And I did a nice tour of the, of the project yesterday with Mission Rock staff. So thanks very much for that. Um, you know, the projects of this size and this complexity, obviously it's going to have challenges, but I do think we should start with it's incredibly successful mm -hmm. and acknowledging that and acknowledging, you know, that, that level of affordable housing, that level of, you know, the visa staying with us this whole time is, is pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, there's going to be challenges and, and it, it makes sense that there's going to be those kind of challenges. I guess I have, I have two questions. Um, I know if you're a Stephen Covey fan, you're supposed to come from a place of abundance. I tend to come from a place of scarcity. So if, if this money is going to go here, as opposed to being available for other poor projects and or for phase two or something, is anything not going to happen because we're having to add more money to this? Or are things going to be delayed because we're not going to be able to spend the money in the way we may have preferred to spend it as opposed to here? And you're talking about a potential poor capital, not the bonds, right? Actually, both, I mean, from that point of view. I mean, and any time that, that budgets go up for one thing, it means something else doesn't happen or something else gets delayed or whatever. And so the port capital, clearly, that's a cash thing in terms of the port. But also, I'm assuming if we're issuing, if we're taking advantage of the increased values to issue debt on this, it means that phase two, as you, as you just said, kind of gets a, a, a bit more difficult possibly because phase one's taken care of better is there what's the impact of that so I'll you can, yeah you can I, can, I can do the bond part and then maybe i'll have nate cruz come up to just talk about the poor capital which is kind of an opportunity cost question of its own uh, the reality is is phase one and phase two are are directly connected so the faster we can stop existing 18 percent return is is strategically going to be better than setting aside money for future money that's not tolling right now. So at the end of the day, the, the 18, making the 18% go away as soon as possible is the move. So if we had more bonding capacity, we would bond this entire, if there was enough anyway. value, we would have bonded the 100% of this, waited, and then ready for phase two, we would be bonding there and stopping it. So I would say from a bonding side, there's, it's the right strategic move to stop the clock on that. Nate, do you wanna talk, poor capitals is probably a little bit different. Sure. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Nate Cruz, uh, Deputy Director of Finance Administration. On the capital contribution question, uh, the assumption that we'd made in the past about these city costs was that they would be reimbursed. Um, and so assuming that sort of net neutral fiscal impact, we didn't really make any trade-off decisions uh, or cut any services or limit any positions or investments. Uh, the effect of this really is is that our fund balance is lower than it otherwise would have been uh, if we did not make this capital contribution. But that that is that that's only true through the current budget cycle. Uh, in FY twenty five, this budget cycle we're, we're coming up in, I think there's some additional costs. It's about I think one point nine million dollars that they're forecasting. That we can no longer assume if we make the contribution that's approved by the commission. 
uh, will, will be reimbursed in, in that same fiscal year. You know, there's, there's downstream payment, repayment opportunities, uh, but it, we, it's no longer this net neutral fiscal effect. And so there we're going to have to make some trade-off decisions, either to pull from fund balance and invest or constrain our capital investment in some other place. But that's where the trade-off decisions are going to be in that in this upcoming fiscal period. And why is it only the last 1.9 and not the year all, all 19? Uh, typically, when we make budget decisions on a year-to-year -year basis, we we don't dip into fund balance. Uh, that's there as a cushion or a reserve. So you've been using re regular annual revenue to be taking care of this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or we 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 you know pre-COVID. We had you know annual revenues coming in. We had a goal of setting aside a certain amount of, for capital every year, and then at the end of the year, breaking even. Uh, COVID changed that quite a bit, right. but the fundamental logic underneath that is is still what we plan on using going forward, especially now that revenues have recovered to pre-pandemic levels. I guess I get the cash flow. I don't get the total. Um, if your if your budget was five million and now it's nineteen. Yeah. There's 14 million going to be invested in this that was not otherwise going to be invested in this. That ultimately comes out of fund balance. That ultimately means that either you have a lower fund balance or you don't do some capital or you do it later on. I mean, is that accurate or am I missing yeah, something? I think, I think that's exactly it. Our, our fund balance is lower than it otherwise would have been by $14 million. Okay. Yeah. And, but you don't, you don't view it as a, as a problem. I mean, a sizable I, problem. Uh, we've been fortunate that because revenues have recovered so quickly, our fund balance is, is, is actually incredibly healthy, and it's at levels that we haven't seen even before the pandemic. And so, you know, I frankly, I'd rather, I'd rather get repaid. I wish I had that money in hand, but, you know, I'm sure we all wish COVID hadn't happened and the challenges of the development project didn't happen. Um, and so we're, we're in an economic place where we can absorb the hit and you know, invest in the in the future of the project and that and that part of the waterfront and additional resilience protection down there. Um, but yeah, it has a, a direct cash impact to the fund balance. Okay, thank you. Sure. And, and just one last question, if I could, Josh. Um, so yeah, nobody likes to see overruns, but they happen on big multi-year projects. They happen. Um, I think one of the things you mentioned, I just want to clarify, was something about making sure that we know about those things earlier or more in a, in a more consistent fashion. Do you have a different plan for the future? Um, I don't have specifics except an acknowledgement. We talked with the, the project team. We both came to a determination. We need to be really ma managing this pretty actively. It's not that we weren't managing it. It's kind of all came together as this big number because we needed to disclose everything to the bonds and therefore kind of push this forward and it's probably the bright practice we should have been putting more emphasis on um we can come with a plan a little more specific plan when we come back in october but we've we've talked both internally about the overall project budget just to make sure we're on the same page and we're flagging things before they become an issue just in case we have to make value engineering decisions or otherwise um so we've had the mrp team and the port both agree that it's that and the city costs themselves. Um, one thing I want to flag about the city costs, I'm the, there's many of us in the city, but I'm the ports housing coordinator under the group um, led by Judson True and his team and that are doing a fantastic job to try to manage these projects. And it's, it's a definitely an issue that's come up is, it's not that the city costs themselves are so expensive, it's the ability to forecast the, the cost needs to get to become improved. And we've started putting that into the action plan that was published in July, just to start of actually engaging, it's that that process needs to get better. And it's it's not an indictment on any group. It's 
it's kind of bringing, I think, the process into a more modern era so we don't have situations like this. So you, I, might, you might consider a quarterly report, and it may be either in person or it may just be a written report that comes to the commission. Either way, that would never make sense unless something important is going on, but something a little more often. Yeah, and that is an exceptionally fair point. Um, I guess I would maybe even the question would be is, is it, does the commission feel a general update is good or does it kind of let us know when something's wrong? Well, that's why a quarterly report lets you know. Yeah. And then if there's something wrong, then it's, then it's it not just a written report, it's something tied to us. I about. think it's a good idea, great idea. So we'll, we'll come back with a formal commitment on that when we get back. Thanks. Thank you. Vice President Adams. Josh, great report. Uh, I appreciate the questions and comments of my fellow commissioners, uh, especially uh, Commissioner Harrington about an update. But I feel I feel comfortable. I, I live two blocks, so I wake up every morning with a view of this area, the project, and everything that's going on. And I really felt that from day one, this thing's been well thought out. I've seen a lot of changes, but that's just normal. Everything's like a moving target sometimes. But I like the steady hand, the way that it's been dealt with. I feel very comfortable how we've handled this. Um, and as I said, the impacts, and this is a massive project. And it's like a helicopter, it's got a lot of moving parts. But I think from where we're at, um, I'm comfortable in, in the leadership, um, Mission Rock, the poor staff, and all those involved. Josh, I appreciate your report. And I'm more than confident that this thing is, is headed where it needs to head and that you've made the adjustments when you've had to make the adjustments. It's kind of like a football team, right? Sometime a quarterback, he has to make adjustments when he reads the defense. And you guys have been able to make certain adjustments along the way, and you've been good, and you've come back to the commission. So thank you, and I'm, I'm supportive, and I continue to support this. I like this. This is I've already seen the impact because I live in this community where it's at. And I'm just seeing the neighborhood, and I'm seeing the vibrance of the neighborhood. And then when it's fully done, it's going to really transform this area. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Adams. Josh, thank you so much for the report. Um, it's a great report, a lot of information. And um, I kind of agree with all my fellow commissioners, their questions, the direction. I'm. It, you know, we, we were briefed last week and we had a conversation and I'm a little, I'm, I'm just a little lost because from what I can see from 2019 to 2023, the project is, is up 50%. And I know we're focusing on the city costs that are up, I think, 75%. <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering, and, and I have to back up and say this is a phenomenally successful project to see the site today, to see all that's been accomplished, all the jobs that have been created, all the um, investment into this community and economy that this team has brought to the port is just phenomenal. But I think I'm really more concerned with how, I do think we need to do a better job of managing this project. And I do think we need to do a better job of understanding the cost and expenses as we move forward because we want the entire project to be successful and we want the entire waterfront to be successful. So I really like the question that uh, Commissioner Harrington had about how is that impacting our general fund, but how is that impacting 
the expected revenue that we thought we were going to have in the future and other projects that need to be completed. So it's like, how does this all work together? And how do we make sure that we have learned the lessons and we are putting policies or strategies in place so that we can monitor this going forward before it gets to a 50% overrun? Well, I guess I would say is I think we're total agreement that we need to be managing this, monitoring it, and reporting out earlier. Um, I think the suggestions from Commissioner Harrington are there. Um, I, we were intending to talking about, you know, I'm not trying to push everything to a different day. I just wanted to make sure, just to set the expectations of what we know. Is the phase two kind of performance, the revenues, how that's going to happen is one of our, we have to model that, and we're currently doing that now. So that aspect uh, is there. I think, oh, sorry. We have to get past and understand phase one <laughs> before we can move to phase two. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's correct. And I think we will be bringing a more detailed, we've, we've got the buckets of, of the project costs for the overall budget. They're shown in the chart, but there's not an explanation in detail. We've, we've listed them qualitatively with respect to kind of these are the things. Um, I, we will work with the developer team so that we can try to put some more direct explanation on to, to that. Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's easy to say it's one thing as far as it goes and this adds up to it because a lot of these are macro factors but uh, I think the request is fair and we owe that to you when we come back in October for a better explanation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Thank you. Jenica, next item please. Item 10B is an informational presentation to consider a possible action to approve a resolution recommending that the Board of Supervisors, one, approve a Mission Rock Special Tax District financing, including the issuance of bonds in an aggregate principal amount not to exceed $58,335,000, and the execution and delivery of financing documents, including the A, Form of Bond Purchase Agreement, B, form of second supplement to development special tax bonds fiscal agent agreement. C, form of office special tax bonds fiscal agent agreement. D, form of shoreline zone one special tax bonds fiscal agent agreement. E, form of continuing disclosure certificate. F, form of preliminary official statement and authorizing and directing the executive director to cause the package to be submitted to the board of supervisors and to work with the Director of the Office of Public Finance to finalize and cause the distribution of the preliminary official statement and the issuance of the bonds, and two, interpreting the rate and method of apportionment of special tax for the Mission Rock Special Tax District. This is Resolution 2341. For callers who wish to make, sorry, for callers who wish to make public comment on this item, please dial star three to raise your hand to comment. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, President Brandon, Commissioners, Wyatt Donnelly, Landolt. I'm with the Ports Development Team, working with Josh Keene, Phil Williamson, and others. I'll be presenting on this item, which is an informational item with potential action. Um, as that very long title uh, described in detail, what this is is it's a request for action to move the bond package to the Board of Supervisors. Uh, which will do the final approval of the, the bonds with a not to exceed amount, uh, as well as all the documents related to that. So the, 
actual bond issuance is a, a large package of documents um, and that they will approve and then we'll go out to market to sell the bonds. Um, this is the third bond issuance related to Mission Rock. So the first two were approved in, and done in 2021. Uh, those were early bonds and I'll talk about why we're able to do a third one a little later. Uh, so to just go through the agenda, we'll provide some background on just project financing structure and the special tax district or community facilities district. I'll use those words interchangeably. There are two names for essentially the same thing. Um, I'll talk about bond sizing and why we're able to issue uh, a new set of bonds this year and talk about the projected 23, 23 bonds, how much money we expect to bring into the project, and then talk about some municipal bond market updates, which has changed significantly uh, over the last couple of years since we last issued bonds, and then next steps and take any questions. So first, high-level project funding structure. The way the Mission Rock project is funded, and when I talk about the project, I talked about the horizontal project, which is the roads, streets, parks, sewers. It's all the infrastructure going to the site. So we're not talking about the buildings here. Those are separate vertical projects. Um, this is funded first through developer and port equity. So the developer funds the majority of this. The port has the option to make that port cop capital advance. Um, it's also funded through land value, so the port can put the value of the land itself into the project. Uh, and ultimately, it's funded through the CFD and IFD sources. CFD stands for a community facilities district, same as a special tax district. It's an additional assessment, uh, a new tax on the site. And then the infrastructure financing district captures what's called tax increment, which is the increase in property taxes. So if your property taxes were a million dollars, now they're 10 million, it captures the 9 million difference. So that's what's ultimately funding this. So we'll be leveraging the CFD and IFD to issue a bond to fund those project costs. Again, roads, parks, et cetera. Um, and then out of this, the port and developer uh, receive a return on their investment with the port receiving 10%, the developer receiving 18%. And then at, at, once those are repaid, um, excess land proceeds return to the port. Um, so as you can see, there's a lot of moving parts here. I think some of the key actions we're looking to do are using CFD IFD sources when avail possible. So those are a much lower interest rate. I'll talk a little bit about interest rates later and maximizing those public financing sources, which we've done throughout. Also really accelerating those and doing them as early as possible. I'll talk in more detail about why that's important. Um, using tax-exempt debt when possible, it gets a lower interest rate, thus brings in more money into the project, and using poor capital. Um, so that's the general project financing structure. So the special tax district itself uh, has four different taxes. There's a development special tax, which funds horizontal infrastructure, um, and it's offset by the IFD tax increment, again, the increase in property taxes. The second is the office special tax, which is solely on office space at the site, also funding horizontal infrastructure. The third is the shoreline special tax. It's a source for ongoing shoreline protection, but for phase one, it's being used to fund horizontal infrastructure because of the increased infrastructure costs in phase one. So those first three taxes are what are being used to issue this bond. The fourth is a contingent services special tax, and that's for maintenance of the site um, if needed. So again, we're proposing to structure this as three separate series, um, 
it's essentially how you cut, cut up the bonds. Um, there's one that will be paid by the development special tax, one that will be paid by the office special tax, and then one that will be paid by zone one of the shoreline special tax. There is a potential for a fourth taxable issuance, but we're hoping not to be able to do that. We believe we have enough tax exempt costs. Um, honestly, if, if we do have to do that, it would be a good thing because we have more proceeds. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how that could happen. So the reason that we're bringing another bond issuance here after the 2021 issuances um, is the property at the site is now developed property. Under the special tax district CFD rules, it converted to developed property in fiscal year 23-24. It means it's paying the full amount of special taxes for the year. So this opened up uh, much more tax capacity to pay future debt service on bonds. And it will allow us, we're recommending issuing bonds up to an additional 58.3 million. That's a not to exceed amount. Um, I'll talk about the specific amount we expect based on current rates uh, momentarily. So the bond sizing is determined by two factors. The first is the revenues. Um, how much taxes do you have? We have to have what's called 110% coverage. That means we have a 10% buffer. So if we have to pay $1 million, we have to have $1.1 million to pay it to make sure if you know, some money's missing, we can always pay our bonds. Um, and this is less administrative expenses for managing the, the CFD. Uh, and the second factor is the appraised or assessed value. So the city has a policy of not issuing CFD debt in excess of a three to one value to lien ratio. What this means is the value of the CFD itself must be three times the debt that is issued. So previously, this was the limiting factor because it was just land. So we were appraising the land, we determined amount, and then we're able to issue based on that. Now, the limiting factor is our tax revenues. Um, so we're going to issue up to the maximum amount our taxes will allow. So this will be the final CFD issuance for the phase one buildings. Um, and the table to the right shows the expected taxes for each with the debt service coverage. Um, so the projected bonds based on current market rates, um, the total is at the bottom, the project fund is at the top. So what those two total uses is the total amount we are spending on the bond. So we are expecting about a $45.5 million issuance. What this brings into the project after you put a reserve to the side um, in case of an issue and pay for the costs of issuance, uh, is about $39.5 million into the project. Uh, and I'll talk about why, why this number, why these numbers versus the not to exceed amount momentarily. And it's split between, again, those three series. So there's a development tax series, an office tax series, and a shoreline tax series. And this maximizes the tax uh, available for each of those series in phase one. So the current municipal markets are no longer uh, at historically low levels. We've seen significant increases uh, with a little bit starting in 2021, but really early 2022, they have shot up and been continued um, interest rate increases. Um, it makes it challenging with this volatility to project exactly what we expect for the issuance later this year. Um, so what we're doing, we've look at many sensitivities. So the current market is shown in the second column with that um, $39.5 million uh, project fund. Um, 
and then we look at changes in the BPS or basis points, which is just one one hundredth of a percentage. So if interest rates go up one percent in the left column, we're down to thirty-four million dollars. Um, if they go up, down one hundred and fifty basis points, or one point five percent, we would get forty-nine point nine million dollars. So the interest rate um, really impacts the amount of money going into the project, which obviously makes it much more challenging to fund things now versus in 2021. Um, and just as the, the basis, the current market uh, is around 5.86%. Um, and we issued at 3.3 and 3.48 in 2021. Um, so next steps, um, we're requesting approval for this today. Uh, we'll introduce it to the Board of Supervisors in the next two weeks, either next week or the following week. We'll present to a Capital Planning Committee um, in October. We're expecting to have a Budget and Finance Hearing Committee targeting October 17th or 18th, uh, and then we'll move to the full board for approval. We'll look to post the, the offering document and close on bonds um, through November and December, um, and we want to have that wrapped up by the end of the year. And as Josh mentioned, we really want to accelerate this. It's one of the best things we can do financially for the project because moving from even the, the almost 6% we're expecting here versus 18% um, on the project with the developer is a, a huge financial benefit. So moving this quickly is one of the best things we can do for the project financials. Uh, so I'll take questions uh, if anyone has them. And I have colleagues from the Office of Public Finance as well if there are technical bond questions. Thank you, Wyatt. Uh, commissioners, can I have a motion? I make a motion to move the item. So moved. Second. Thank you. Uh, is there any public comment in the room? Seeing none, Corey, is there anyone on the phone? At this time, there is no one on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Harrington? Thank you. Um, this makes perfect sense, and the whole discussion makes sense. Thank you so much. Two requests. Mm -hmm. When the POS is ready, could you send us a link to it? And Absolutely. two, it's interesting to see who invests in our kinds of things. So when, when you know that later on, if you'd let us know that information also. Yeah, we can definitely follow up with that information. Thank you, Commissioner Gilman. Um, thank you so much. I have no questions. Commissioner Lee. No questions. Vice President Adams. Let's vote. <laughs> <laughs> As we all know, we desperately need this funding. <laughs> all in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Resolution 2341 is adopted. Jenica, next item, please. Item 10C is an informational presentation on a proposed new lease with Recology San Francisco for approximately 74 months for operation of a single stream mixed materials recycling center at Pier 96. For callers who wish to make public comment on this item, please dial star 3 to raise your hand to comment. Good afternoon, President Brandon, Vice President Adams, Commissioners Gilman, Harrington, and Lee. I'm Kimberly Beal, Acting Deputy Director for Real Estate and Development, and I am joined today by Justin Bigelow, who's with the City Attorney's Office, as well as Maurice McQuillan, General Manager with Recology, to present an informational presentation on a proposed new lease with Recology at Pier 96. 
I want to acknowledge and recognize a lot of staff members who helped with providing information for this report. Monaco Corral, Jennifer G, Andre Coleman, Rada Washta, Stephen Real, Matt Wickens, David Bupre, Marilyn Ye, and Max Zerbin. Sorry, Max. Um, I also want to mention that this presentation is going to focus on Recology at Pier 96, which is the only location they currently occupy um, at the port. They did have a lease at one time for a crushing facility, and that site um, has been vacated and that lease terminated. So as background, uh, Port and Recology originally operating as West Coast Recycling entered into a lease in 1998 for space for a recycling facility at Pier 96, which is an industrial maritime facility. The original lease term was for five years. However, because the level of investment required to convert the shed into a modern recycling facility, the tenant requested a longer term. The lease was amended, extending the term from five years to 25 years um, by Port Commission Resolution 9920. And as consideration for the extended term, the tenant agreed to certain minimum throughputs of containerized cargo generated at the recycling facility through the port's container terminals. If the tenant fell short of the minimum throughputs and failed to make up the transfers in the subsequent year, the tenant was required to pay a maritime deficiency fee. The fee is additional rent equal to twice the amount of the wharfage that would have been paid on the minimum number of transfers. Pre-sorted recyclables from the tenant's curbside recycling programs were further sorted at the site where they would be loaded onto 20 and 40 foot shipping containers. These containers would be shipped to process centers in the Far East. If space was not available on container cargo ships calling at the Port of San Francisco, containers were to be transferred to barge by Pier, I'm sorry, from Pier 80 to other barrier ports for shipment. In 2005, the port stopped handling container traffic at Pier 80. After the closure of Pier 80 as a container facility, the port agreed to amend the lease to revise the maritime deficiency fee provision. This was done under resolution 0941. This allows the port to waive half of the fee when the port is not served by one or more container shipping lines per month with a minimum of four departures each month from the port to destinations in Asia. The maritime deficiency fee paid to the port following the waiver is approximately $312,000 per year. Recology's lease expired in, um, on July 31st of this year, but prior to lease expiration, Recology initiated a request for a new long-term lease. However, no capital improvements were proposed to support the need for a long-term agreement. Additionally, there would be no shipment of recyclables by water, so the new lease would be a non-maritime lease. The waterfront plan prioritizes maritime uses at this location but contemplates interim uses that are not water-oriented for up to 10 years. Port staff believe the length of a non-maritime lease at this location should relate to a reasonable amortization of the cost of new capital improvements on the site that benefit the port and the tenant. 
current facility uh, conditions of the facility, um, the property occupied is an industrial maritime facility, as I mentioned. The site is fill over bay mud and earthquake liquefaction of the fill is expected along with lateral spreading within about 200 feet of the shoreline. The soil conditions of the balance of the site cannot support additional development without extensive engineering. The site is not served by a municipal storm drain system and is subject to storm surge and stormwater runoff that results in periodic flood risk, causing an interruption of operations. The stringer space has been subject to blowouts where the seawall has failed in spots and wave action has undermined the pavement, causing sinkholes, forcing repairs. The pictures shown here are from the episodic storm event which occurred on New Year's Eve of last year during which the site experienced um, two to three feet of flooding. Given these conditions, uses of the site are limited and it was concluded through appraisal that the highest and best use of the property is for a continuation of the existing use. As I mentioned, Recology did not propose any capital improvements to justify a longer-term lease. However, um, has agreed to complete a seismic and facilities condition studies report um, that could be used to identify future capital improvements that justify a possible extended term. The studies will include an assessment of the building and foundation, provide an understanding of seismic deficiencies at the site, provide conceptual retrofit strategies and provide guidance in determining the scope of new improvements, but will not commit the port to any future action. The estimated cost of procuring these studies is a million dollars, which is additional compensation to the port. The seismic evaluation would be provided to the port within the first two years of a new lease and the facilities conditions studies before the end of year five. In trying to determine the new rent for a new lease, um, based on the current inability to ship containerized cargo from this location, port staff has concluded it is unreasonable to require a maritime throughput commitment in a new lease. Use of the stringer space, which was originally used for loading up containers, was previously non-exclusive, causing no payment to be required. With the shipping constraints at this location, and the construction of a concrete berm with fencing limiting water access. Use of the stringer space has become exclusive to Recology, so during holdover and under the new lease, use of this area will require payment of fair market rent. Under the current lease, base rent was increased following an appraisal in January of 2022 and increased again in January of this year based on CPI. In May, the site was appraised again to determine the base rent during the holdover period and account for the modified lease premises to include the stringer space. The result in the rent, um, this resulted in the rent being increased to $369,000 per month, effective August 1st of this year. This is an increase of $31,000 per month or $379,000 annually. This increase exceeds the loss in revenue from the maritime deficiency fee that will no longer apply in a new non-maritime lease. Base rent will also be subject to 3% annual increases each year. 
Um, and also, um, the rent would be subject to a fair market value increase in year five. Key terms, then, of a new lease. Um, the site would continue to be used as operation of a single-stream mixed-use materials recycling center. The term would be for approximately 74 months. As I mentioned, rent is $369,000 per month with 3% annual increases with a fair market adjustment in year five. The port would not assess any maritime deficiency fee, but tenant will be required to pay any amounts owed under the prior lease. And to the extent any maritime activities occur on the site, um, maritime tariff rates pertaining to dockage and wharfage would apply. Okay. At its sole cost and expense, the tenant will procure a seismic evaluation and facilities conditions study. And this location is in the southern waterfront, so therefore it is also subject to the southern waterfront beautification policy, where 6.5% of the revenues will be set aside for the, um, for the fund um, within the first five years. That's about $1.5 million. And in, in addition, the tenants' efforts in the past have supported local hiring, sourcing new hires from the area, using community businesses, regular litter pickup on, along Cargo Way, providing school tours of the facility, um, providing education on recycling, and supporting an artist residence program. These are all activities that would continue under a new lease. So in, in staff's analysis, uh, we de determined the tenant is a, a tenant in good standing and the proposed use is consistent with the port's waterfront plan. The port needs to keep its facilities productive to generate the revenues necessary to fund ongoing operations and finance capital improvements. Under the waterfront plan, port's lands may be leased for a wide range of interim uses, which are up to 10 years pending the land's ultimate development or improvement to achieve long-term public trust benefits. Interim uses are therefore essential in supporting the port's financial stability. If approved, the proposed lease will support the port's strategic plan objectives <coughs> of economic recovery by managing the real estate portfolio to maximize revenue with a focus, excuse me, a focus on tenant retention, resilience, as a seismic study required under the agreement will provide recommended improvements to improve the port's resilience to earthquakes and engagement as it will help meet the city's zero waste goals by providing a location where recyclable materials can be sorted and diverted from landfills. So as next steps, port staff intends to finalize negotiations with Recology We'll be informing the Southern Advisory Committee of the proposed continued use at the next SAC meeting, which is scheduled for September 27th. And we hope to return to the Port Commission in October to seek approval to enter into a new lease. If the Port Commission approves, the lease would then be subject to approval by the Board of Supervisors. And with that, that concludes my presentation and I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you for your presentation. Is there any public comment in the room? Seeing none, Corey, is there anyone on the phone? 
At this time, there is no one on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thank you, Corey. Commissioner Lee. Well, <clears throat> it's kind of nice to know that a tenant wants to stay and, <laughs> and want to pay even more if, they had, if we had the you know, maritime park going. So I have no questions. It's, it, it's really great. They want to do the education. You know, I'm all about recycling and also the clean, cleanup down in that area. It's important. So yeah, I'm all for it. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Harrington. Thanks, Ms. Beal. Um, I'm completely in favor of this item, but I do have a couple questions. Yes. On, on page eight, it talks about possibly taking over the canopy if the PUC removes the solar panels. Do you know if there's a plan to actually decrease the amount of solar in the city by removing those, or is that just a contingency kind of thing? So the solar panels that are on that area are not oper operable. Oh, great. And so we have requested the <laughs> PUC remove them, otherwise it would be um, our cost to do so. And so that is a separate MOU that we have with PUC for those panels in that area. It'd be great if they could make them operable as opposed to removing them, but whatever ends up happening. Um, I guess the, the second question, should the city during this next seven years or whatever uh, choose a different scavenger vendor? Is this, is this lease assignable? Or how, does that, how would that work? No, in the, in, with our current negotiations, it is not something that we are looking to assign. Okay. And so if that happened and they wanted to get out of this lease, there are provisions that they could do that, though, at some point? No? We are still in negotiations. Okay. You might want to think about that as you look at it, just to see if that's something that you, that you may need as, a, as an out. I'm not suggesting that Recology will not be here forever, but we do have a change in the law about how we could change that. And, and the third question is completely unfair to ask you, but if somebody, um, in 2005, when we stopped doing cargo, my assumption is that we started taking this out by truck, which increased air pollution, asthma, asthma rates in the neighborhood, all those kind of things. Do we ever do any kind of a study on that or mitigation of how this impacts the community that, that, that this is happening in? And I guess if so, if someone could just send me that information, I don't, I don't expect you to know the answer to that today. I am just, I know that Maurice is here, as is David Beaupre, and I'm wondering if either of them might have some history and be able to answer your question today. Okay. Hi, Commissioners. David Beaupre, Deputy Director of Planning and Environment. So when, uh, when we did stop doing cargo at Pier 80, container cargo, we did additional environmental review to see what the impacts were for the additional truck runs. I don't have the results in front of me. I, we could go back in the files, but it is something that we did assess and we did get environmental review for. And I'm assuming that that meant there were some mitigation kinds of things. And if that's there, I'd love to see what it is, if you can send it to me. Okay. Uh, I, I don't recall whether there were mitigations. I will note, just because we're on the topic, one of the things that we do have all of our tenants in the area do is when they have to hire truckers as a community benefit and also as a part of the policy for their lease is they have to use um, good faith efforts to use locally certified LBE truckers. And we get those reports monthly. It doesn't really have to do with air emissions and relation, um, 
emissions, but it does, you know, is a, is a benefit to the community too. And I know that they're uh, do a good job in doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Vice President Adams. Oh, okay. Um, great. Kimberly, great report. I'm on my Prozac now, so I'm a lot better. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this this is great. You know, this is a perfect fit and um, recycling to make this commitment. And I, I appreciate uh, Commissioner Harrington because many times um, President Brandon has brought up about the air quality in the southern waterfront, and this is an issue. And that's an important thing, especially in the southern waterfront, but uh, their commitment. And uh, I think this is a good fit, and I hope they will continue to grow because I think they've been a good partner. Not like some. I think, you know, Ecology has been a good partner for the port, and uh, I will continue, and I, I support this. Thank you. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for this report. Back to the environmental review. So when is the last time we've done one? In 2005? They do tend to only happen when there's a change. So <laughs> we've had several changes. <laughs> well, we, we did it originally, I think the first lease was in 1998, which preceded me. Um, then uh, we did a lease amendment, I think, in around 2002, which we would have had to do an assessment then to see if there were any changes of use. Uh, between 1998 and 2005, we also, you may recall, we did in 2001 the Southern Waterfront Supplemental Environmental Impact Report, tearing off of the original waterfront plan. So we looked at it then, and then of course we just finished the waterfront plan update environmental review. And so we look at the assessment of the impacts of all the existing uses and potential new uses. So we have one from 2021, an update from 2021? Yes. 2021? Okay. You're not sounding sure on that. Well, I'm, I'm just sounding, I'm trying to think of it. So it was just uh, in 2023, the Port Commission adopted the waterfront plan and the findings from the waterfront plan environmental impact report. So it was adopted in 2023. So it was adopted this yes. year? It was adopted this year, yes. And we did a new review within that Well, we in 2021? Well, that, that process started, I think, and Diane Oshima ran that process, but I believe we started that environmental review in approximately 2019 when we finished up the waterfront plan. And as a part of that environmental review, we looked at all the existing operations, which Recology would have fallen under, and potential new operations that would be coming on top of it. So we didn't specifically review Recology's operations in this one because it's an existing condition but but our truck trips pretty much the same no increase no yeah I, I don't believe and Maurice could answer that whether the truck trips have changed uh, from when it was last reviewed which would have been approximately 2005 probably just a little bit of an increase put potentially but uh, when we did that review in 2005, we anticipated growth of materials and how much it would grow, which equates to truck trips as well. And I don't think the, I don't, well, I'm fairly certain that we haven't exceeded the projections of those volumes 
that they can throughput at Pier 96. My recollection is that the three can thing came about right around that time too, or a little before that. So odds are it's been, the big increases that happened with the three can would have probably been there. And I also believe that uh, when we did the initial review, it was, they were diesel trucks and I think they've converted them to CNG, which are lower emissions as well. Is that correct? Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. David, a question for you. Following up on President Brandon and Commissioner Harrington, how often do you think it's reasonable that those kind of uh, studies are done? And, and does Recology have any information on that that they themselves do? How often do you think a study should be done? I mean, I'm just being reasonable. How often? Because you said 2005, right? Right. What, and this what, is 2023, so we're talking about almost 18 years ago, right? Yes, and where we do the review is through the California Environmental Quality Act, and what triggers that analysis are new uses, not an assessment of existing uses. However, that being said, we have goals in our strategic plan, uh, we have goals in our resilience program and in the waterfront plan to look at ways of reducing emissions we're beginning, we got the CALSTA grant that's looking at how do we bring in uh, low emissions or zero emission vehicles into the southern waterfront. And as a part of that review, you always want to know what's the baseline condition, how can we improve, and all of our leases in the southern waterfront, we have conditions and actually incentives for the employees <coughs> to do lower emissions improve their equipment, and the Air District constantly adds additional new regulations on requiring lower emissions uh, equipment out there. So it's through those types of methods that we've actually been able to very significantly reduce emissions down on the southern waterfront, whether it's tenants like Central Concrete and Semex converting and getting new trucks to bring into equipment, Recology doing CNG, working with our lot, a lot of our independent truckers to see if they can take uh, advantage of the Carl Moyer program through the Air District to get new engine upgrades. And then also looking at the whole concept of the Eco-Industrial Center is co-locating uses so that the materials needed for those industries are located next to one another. So Martin Marietta brings in all the sand and aggregate to support the concrete batch plants. If we weren't doing that, those truck trips would be coming from the South Bay and the East Bay. So there isn't, again, we don't proactively go out and do an, an active assessment of what's happening there annually or every 10 years. What triggers, what legally triggers it is the CEQA review, uh, but we're always looking to see how we can reduce truck trips Reduce, reduce all forms of vehicle trips and reduce emissions. Okay. What about uh, electric trucks? When's that coming down? Well, that is a part of the CALSA grant. We'll be looking, I think, at both electric trucks and hydrogen fuel trucks. Like what, five years? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, hate, I hate to guess. I did hear from Andre uh, that uh, in the last uh, couple of months we've had I think some hydrogen fueled trucks come over the dock from Asia so it's happening um, but without first doing the assessment and figuring out how we can do it and what the needs are and where the technology is I, I would not uh, want to guess thank you okay <laughs> thank you David thank you Kim
look forward to you coming back next month. Jenica, next item, please. Item 10D is an informational presentation on a proposed new memorandum of understanding with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, HSH, for a term of two years with one two-year option to extend at Seawall Lot 330. And for callers who wish to make public comments on this item, please dial star three to raise your hand to comment. Good afternoon, commissioners. Good evening, commissioners. Um, my name is Sandra Oberly. I'm senior property manager with the Port of San Francisco. Um, I'm also going, join, joining me today is going to be Dylan Schneider with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, who is operating the navigation center that we're going to be talking about and, and um, discussing the new MOU. So we have an MOU that was approved originally in 2019. The commencement date of the MOU was December 30th. It was originally a two-year MOU with an option to extend for another two years. Uh, in 2021, staff came back to commission and um, uh, you approved exercising the option to extend. That agreement is now going to expire December 29th of this year. The port has, staff has been working with HSH on extending this agreement for another two-year term with a two-year option. So the new expiration date would be um, December 29, 2027. Uh, the term um, will include the option, or I'm sorry, the agreement will include the option for the port to terminate the agreement at any time with six months written notice in the event the port needs to use the property for a port project or for the upcoming development of the, the site. Um, so. They, the term can, can end at any time with that six-month notice. Um, the initial monthly rent will be $41,059.92 per month and increased by 3% annually. That's based on the existing formula that was established in 2019. Um, an analysis was done at that time on parking revenues, which was the original use of that property. Um, the, the monthly fee has increased 3% every year, and we were just planning to continue that rent structure at this point in time and moving forward with the new MOU. At the end of the agreement, when we exercise the termination notice or when the agreement expires, um, then HSH will have six months to demobilize the site and address um, you know, movement of guests at the location and so forth. I would like to have Dylan come up now. And we have a presentation from, uh, from Dylan to review the operations of the, um, the navigation center and provide more detail on that. Dylan? Good evening, esteemed commissioners. Dylan Schneider, Manager of Legislative Affairs with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I use she, her pronouns, and I am thrilled to be before you tonight to share a little bit more about the Embarcadero Navigation Center and the proposed uh, two-year new agreement. So just a little context setting that I know you all are incredibly aware of. San Francisco and the Bay Area continue to be in a housing affordability crisis. According to the 2022 point in time count, 
a federally required count that we do every two years of people experiencing homelessness in our community. 7,000 people were experiencing homelessness in San Francisco, and over 4,000 of those were experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Every day, the city provides housing and shelter to over 15,000 people, and the Embarcadero Navigation Centers Center continues to play a really critical role as part of that system of care. So speaking of our temporary shelter and crisis intervention, intervention system, I just wanted to give a little bit of context on the, the piece and the part that the Navigation Center plays uh, within our shelter portfolio. So we have both temporary shelter and crisis interventions that provide a place for people to go when they're experiencing homelessness as a temporary place to stay while accessing services and working towards a permanent exit from homelessness. In Home by the Bay, the citywide five-year strategic plan to prevent and end homelessness that was published earlier this year, we call for a packaged investment in prevention, shelter, and housing to get us towards our goals uh, that include, um, one of our five-year goals includes decreasing unsheltered homelessness by 50% in San Francisco and overall homelessness by 15%. We know in order to reach that goal as well as the others in our plan, again, that packaged investment in prevention, stemming the inflow into homelessness, shelter, giving folks a, an emergency and temporary place to stay, and housing to help folks find a permanent solution to homelessness is all incredibly important. And that plan does call for over 1,000 new shelter beds. So our goal is to really maintain the system we have as well as expand capacity. And just to finish this up, we currently operate over 3,000 beds and units of shelter and crisis interventions. Um, as of September 1st, across our navigation center beds, which is just over 1,000, we had a 97% occupancy rate. So really speaking to the navigation centers continue to be desirable and are very highly utilized by this population. So a little bit about the Embarcadero Navigation Center. As Sandy mentioned, this opened in December of 2019, and the Embarcadero Navigation Center provides low barrier shelter for adults experiencing homelessness. And we welcome partners, pets, and possessions. And we serve up to 200 guests. Five Keys Schools and Programs is the selected nonprofit operator of the site, and they provide two daily meals, laundry and showers, case management, housing and benefits navigation, and referrals to services, wellness checks, supportive groups, social events, and activities. So as I mentioned, this program accounts for 200 beds in our over 2,200 units of temporary shelter for adults. And about 1,000 of these beds are congregate shelter, which includes the Embarcadero Navigation Center. As of September 1st, capacity at the Embarcadero Navigation Center was at its full capacity of 200 beds, and we had 199 guests, or a 99.5% occupancy rate at the site. We continue to see Embarcadero be incredibly popular. Um, it is a wonderful location. Five Keys has done amazing programming at the site, and it's very accessible, especially for folks with higher needs or accessibility issues. In FY22-23, there were 414 guests served at the program. 34% of these clients were black, 26% were Latine, and 23% were older adults over the age of 55. 
Again, just reflecting the diverse needs of this population and again, the desirability of Embarcadero. So I wanted to share a success story about one of our guests at the Navigation Center. I think sometimes we get so used to talking about the numbers, we forget that each one of those numbers we talk about is a human story and a journey of someone. And there have been so many journeys that have been impacted by the services offered at the Embarcadero Navigation Center, and this is just one to share. Uh, this is the story of Jonathan, who became a guest at the Embarcadero Navigation Center during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And while he originally kept to himself, five key staff really continued to find ways to engage him over time through programming, through support, through referrals, to really try to understand what his goals for the future were. Jonathan became a vital part of this community. Uh, staff remember fondly that he became very passionate and found purpose in supporting the upkeep of the dog area at the program and volunteering with outside organizations. And at the end of 2022, Jonathan moved into permanent supportive housing. Since moving, he's continued to come back and visit the Embarcadero Navigation Center, thank the Five Keys staff for all of their support, and he just celebrated nine months of sobriety. So again, just a success story of one, one of the many that are served at this program and, and how, um, how much of an impact a well-run quality program like this can have on someone's life and exit out of homelessness. A little bit about referrals to the program. So we continue to run referrals through the city's centralized placement process with prioritization for community placements from the outreach zone through the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team and the Healthy Streets Operations Center. This site does not accept walk-ins. This was one of our community agreements back in 2019. And from May to June of this year, we were increasing capacity at the site as part of the reinflation efforts uh, post-COVID. We went from 120 beds to 200 beds. Um, during that period, we really focused outreach efforts in that area surrounding the Embarcadero Navigation Center. 88.5% of guests that were referred to the program during that time came from community placement partners that included the homeless outreach team and HSOC. The majority of that 88.5% came from this area around Embarcadero Center. Um, all of the individuals that were unsheltered in the outreach zone were offered a bed at the Embarcadero at least once during that time period. And SF Hot was providing outreach at least three times a week in the area. Again, really supporting our community as part of that reinflation re process as capacity expanded. I just mentioned the outreach zone. This again harkens back to the 2019 agreement with the community where we identified outreach and safety zones around the program. The safety zone continues to be prioritized by the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team and by the dedicated SFPD beat officers. And under the original 2019 Memorandum of Understanding between HSH and the port, the city was required to demonstrate a decrease over the two-year period. This was between 2019 and the option to extend in 2021. Um, as of April 2021, as presented to the port commission, there was a 77% decrease of unsheltered individuals in the outreach zone. This lovely chart in front of you shows the continued count of unsheltered individuals in the outreach zone from March of 2019 prior to the program opening to the latest quarterly citywide count conducted in July 2023. And I just want to note 
we continue to share this with our community advisory group, and we have gotten a lot of feedback about these numbers, and I just want to recognize that we know that this is an undercount uh, of the actual people that are in the area. A lot of this is because the counts are done early in the morning. There are folks that may be asleep in their tents. There are folks that are at work or not in the area. So we are looking at ways to add additional reporting here to really help us understand kind of taking a pulse of that community of what's happening around it. But we do continue to see the number of unhoused individuals in this count continue to drop. And then just for context, uh, these are the results citywide from the HSOC 2023 count from July that found 609 tents and structures across the city and over 1,000 inhabited vehicles citywide. So we are dealing with a, a crisis across the city and we continue to see efforts in the Embarcadero um, with this center and some of the resources that are coming from the city to support the program, really making a positive impact in this area. As part of the original agreement, uh, we had five key, let's see here, sorry, I'm getting out of tune because I get excited about all of those charts. So as part of our original MOU, uh, we contracted with five key schools and programs as to be the nonprofit operator of the site. As part of that, they were required to provide dedicated cleaning to a designated area around the Embarcadero Navigation Center. You'll see that area in the little quadrangular shape to the right. Uh, five key staff clean the area at least two times a day, up to five times a day when they have available staff. They pick up litter and garbage from the area. They engage with unsheltered individuals. Uh, they can also connect with SF Hot if outreach or shelter placement is needed. They respond to cleaning requests from neighbors via the public text line, and they can flag larger debris needs for DPW. Again, as part of the original MOU, we had previewed this good neighbor policy that is part of our contract requirements with five keys. I will not read you all nine requirements. Um, but this, again, kind of speaks to the requirements that we continue to speak to and that our community advisory groups hold us and five keys accountable to for the program. We have um, many city partners that continue to support HSH with the ongoing operations of this program. And in preparation for this new agreement, we have worked with uh, HSH, the port, SFPD, DPW, and the Healthy Streets Operations Center out of the Department of Emergency Management to create an interdepartmental agreement. This agreement provides an overview of commitments from each city department, many of which uh, maintain the original commitments from the 2019 MOU and go a step further to provide additional clarity on the roles and responsibilities of each department's role in supporting this program. So for example, in this interdepartmental agreement that will be an exhibit to the agreement, uh, SFPD has recommitted their priority for dedicated beat officers in this area, supporting it through the term of the program. The Embarcadero Safe Navigation Center Community Advisory Group was created in 2019, and I just, I know Alice Rogers is in the audience, and I just really want to thank Alice and Rick and everyone who has been part of this really incredible effort. Not only has the ESNAG group been meeting quarterly since the beginning of this program uh, to facilitate inclusive communication and collaboration. They have been a huge part in working very closely with the departments and five keys to adjust reporting as needed, 
to bring up concerns in the community and help those be addressed in a real-time manner. And they have the ESNAG model is something that HSH has taken and now applied to almost every new program that we open. Uh, we have found the benefit of really working with a facilitated group that represents the community to be able to really raise concerns and hold ourselves and other city partners accountable for our continued commitments to these programs. So ESNAG will continue throughout the term of this program and we look forward to continuing to work with the community through this vehicle. Last few slides. Um, SFPD crime stats. I just wanted to provide this. This is part of the monthly reporting that SFPD presents uh, that is posted on the port's website and presented during our quarterly ESNAG meetings. And as you can see from the graph, the incidents in the safety zone continue to be below the 2018 rate that was prior to the opening of the navigation center. As a comparison, in July 2018, there were 127 distinct incidents in the safety zone, and in July 2023, there were 66, or a 52% decrease. This is all in the staff report, so I will go over this high level. I know you all know this well at this point, but the proposed new MOU with the port would continue the interim use as this property as the Embarcadero Navigation Center. The proposed MOU is a two-year term with an option to extend for up to two more years, of course, subject to termination for the site when it is needed for development. And then our community engagement process, we started back in July, and you can see kind of on the timeline here, HSH has hosted both a virtual and an in-person community meeting to talk about the proposed MOU. Uh, there was an informational update at the, at the NAC in July. We will go back next week for a full presentation. And of course, we are here today and look forward to coming back in October. Thank you so much. <coughs> Thank you, Dylan. <coughs> Thanks, Dylan, so much information. Um, and, you, and, it's, and you get it in compactly too. Um, any questions, anything that, that we can answer? Thank you. We will now open it up to public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? <laughs> Alice, I do have a speaker card for you. Alice Rogers. And then Margaret King. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Alice. Uh, good afternoon again, commissioners. Didn't trip this time. Um, I'm Alice Rogers, and I'm here um, really as an individual um, who lives in the outreach zone. Um, and so uh, the perspectives that I'm sharing are my own. I'm also um, affiliated with the neighborhood the South Beach Rincon Mission Bay Neighborhood Association, and um, we made a great effort to um, amplify um, the port's uh, mailings on this um, issue, HS, HS mailings on this issue, and we held um, a meeting of our own that was very well attended by residents. So um, this proposal really, I feel, has been well aired throughout the um, throughout the area, um, and we really have encouraged people to come and speak, um, whatever their perspective was. So, um, so hopefully those who have concerns will speak up. Perhaps not here, but um, uh, on your Zoom. Um, I, I together 
let me say again. I had the pleasure of serving as vice chair um, for the advisory group for the Navigation Center, along with uh, Rick Dickerson, who was the chair. And together, he and I have sent you a letter in advance of um, this hearing, which I hope that between now and the time that you approve, and we do hope that you approve this MOU, um, we'll look at. Um, we, we both very much support the MOU, but we do have some caveats, a few caveats, which we very much hope that you'll take into consideration. Um, we, we must approve, we, we cannot remove 200 beds from the existing shelter um, system. So this project really, in our opinion, does need to go forward. This, uh, this um, bed is a critical resource for the overall program, and it also um, needs to stand as a template for, um, for more shelters all throughout the city. We really need 20 more of these. We really need 2,000 beds, more than the 1,000 beds that HSH has said. Um, the interagency agreement um, is actually a step forward from the first MOU because as I understand it, um, the agreement then was sort of a handshake and now we've got something in writing. But that agreement, in my opinion, um, needs uh, some addendums um, in the small print in terms of some of the boundaries and responsibilities that are outlined. And I've written that in the letter to you. Um, but the, the primary consideration that Rick and I and so many in the neighborhood are concerned about um, the original MOU called out for the footbeat officers. And these are a key operational point um, that really can't be left to, to chance. They were understaffed under the, the current situation. Um, and so we are really looking um, for this agreement to um, enforce an unconditional unconditional staffing of the footbeat officers, they make a huge um, difference. I've overstayed my welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Margaret King. Uh, good afternoon or good evening. My name is Margaret Keene. I live in the safety zone, very close to the Navigation Center. I'm a longtime SOMA resident. Um, I'm here on my own, but I have also had numerous conversations with my neighbors, and I think they share most of what I'm about to say. Um, starting with the common ground, we understand that this 200 beds is a critical part of the city's efforts to fight homelessness. Uh, I'm not going to the nuts and bolts that Dylan spoke to so eloquently. What I want to speak about are three points that really aren't covered in the memo that went to the port about this project. Um, the first is that it seemed like the discussion of the coverage of the beat police was somewhat cursory. I have attended three public meetings and in each of those three public meetings a representative of the police department essentially said we don't have the resources to do this folks. We'd like to help you but we can't. We don't have it. So if there truly is a commitment that's wonderful but I, 
it needs to be in writing, and I'm with Alice on that. It's just an absolutely critical part of this. We went from about 120 beds to 200 beds in a very short period, and in, I'm a walker. I walk constantly. I don't even drive. Um, I see what's going on, and it's gotten worse. And it's not a good thing. I've been assaulted. I've been threatened, or not physically assaulted, but verbally. I've been threatened. I, um, you know, it, it's something that absolutely has to be dealt with. When the uh, uh, HHS came in to renew, they talked about four beat police officers dedicated 24-7, not 24-7, on 11 to 9, seven days a week. That's not happening. So we, that needs to be addressed. It's part of the commitment that was made to the neighborhood, and it needs to be continued. Um, on the Good Neighbor Memorandum, I walk by there all the time. I see drug deals. I'm not blind, right? There are people sitting in that Beale Street cul-de-sac all the time. I have pictures of them. Um, I've been threatened for taking pictures. And they're there. They're outside all the time. And that needs to be dealt with. I understand that there are surveillance cameras. I also understand that Five Keys doesn't have anybody's staff looking at them. But it's out there. It needs to be addressed. I'm not making it up. Um, and then as far as the numbers, the data needs to be dealt with. This, this number that just drives me nuts is seeing that there were three people in the outreach area that were unsheltered in July and one um, in the safety zone. As I said, I live in the safety zone. Morning, lift up my shades, I look out the window. Okay, we see six encampment dwellings here on Main Street. Mm, let's look over here to Spear. Oh, there's four over there. Oh, let's take a little walk along the Embarcadero and start counting the one-offs. I don't even go over to Second Street or Mission. So it's just an utterly stupid number. And when, the, uh, when HHS came in here two years ago and talked about how they had improved things, they pointed to the improvement from whenever to August 21, and the numbers then were like 18 and 6. So in fact, by my count, the numbers in the safety zone have gotten worse. I'm not going to get you with the paint drying details of all the deficiencies of this data, but it's a bloody mess. It's not apples and oranges, and it needs to be fixed up, which is a point that Alice made. Thank and you, Margaret. That, thank you. Thank you. Is there any other public comment? in the room. If not, Corey, is there anyone on the phone? At this time, there is no one on the phone <laughs> wishing to make public comment on this item. Wonderful. Com public comment is closed. Uh, Commissioner Gilman. Thank you, Commissioner Brandon. Um, I actually have a, a series of questions for the department, um, but before I get to those questions, I, um, I, want, I want to say a couple, a couple of things just, I think, for me to level set and they may not be the most popular things, but I feel I need to say it as someone who spent close to 25 years of her professional career in the housing and homeless ecosystem here in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area. Um, we, we are absolutely, as, as a region, facing a housing crisis. Um, everyone's homeless numbers went up in the last <coughs> point in time count. We have 1.2 million individuals in the Bay Area and all nine Bay Area counties that live on less than $37,000 a year. 37% of them are full-time workers and 41% are our elders and our seniors. And every, every major city is seeing a slip in the homelessness. And not to conflate homelessness and, and seeing a rise in fentanyl use and, and our drug crisis. Um, and so many of my questions are actually about the amenities across our portfolio at the port um, that are offered. Um, the, the Navigation Center is critical. In 2019, I was one of its biggest supporters. Um, but Dylan, I, I need to say I, ha I have some 
I have some concerns about extending this MOU, and I have concerns about our partnership from a port perspective um, with, with the department. Um, we have navigation centers in Dogpatch and at Pier 94. Um, do they have beat officers patrolling them for those neighborhoods? Do they have safety zones? Do they have the same kind of community outreach that you're providing here for this community? That's my first question. Thank you, Commissioner Gilman. For Site F, the Pier 94 site, and the Dogpatch Navigation Center, I believe we do have outreach zones, at not for the Pier 94 because that was a COVID program, so there was a different style of outreach for that. We do not have beat officers for those areas. We have tried to find other you know, resources within the providers to care for the community. There are some dedicated cleaning. The beat officers are really a commitment that came based on the community negotiations back in 2019 for this particular area. And I do acknowledge that this it's a much more denser residential zone, um, but um, you know I think it goes to equity um, when you're asking to use port property, property that uh, I mean, see, the seawall lot is different because it is one of our few parcels that can, in perpetuity, have housing on it. But Pier 94, the dog patch area, because of the public trust and because of our maritime uses, can't have housing on them. Um, so I just want to make sure that we're providing those communities with the same kind of amenities when you're coming here and asking us to extend an MOU. And, and my next concern is that there's no data in this report about where people are going. And I have major concerns that I, I have not seen HSA show us that you can decommission a site, successfully house and move people with a six months notice of us needing to terminate the MOU for use. We've struggled at other sites with that. So what's the game plan if for some reason before this two-year extension is over, we need to break ground or start construction on the redevelopment of, of the seawall lot, which is a conjunction with Pierce 3032? Sure, thank you. So to the first question, um, I'm happy. I do not have the data in front of me on exits for this program, but I'm more than happy to go back to our team and share that with all of the commissioners and certainly have that for the October hearing. I think that's an important point. We do include you know, exits over time to housing or other shelter services as part of our monthly report that's published on the port website through the eSNAG group, but we'll bring that here in October. To your second point, I think we have improved greatly in our ability to wind down sites, and this was a lot of the lessons that we learned during the SIP hotel closures uh, back in December of 2022. We've learned how to really marshal our coordinated entry resources to come into a site to make sure we are doing assessments and really trying to prioritize housing placements or problem solving for any of the guests at that site, and then also making sure that there are appropriate shelter placements to offer anyone who is not interested or does not qualify for that housing. Um, so that is what we would need to do for Embarcadero. I will say I think having, well, we are, well, six months would be short, so what we would want to be doing is planning as soon as we can to be able to really be prepared to do that successfully. Um, I think that is why looking at two years with the two-year extension and working very closely with the port so we can keep in communication about development timelines or anything else so we can be looking ahead and doing that planning as far in advance as possible will help us be more successful in winding down that site in a way that really helps guests exit to permanent solutions. So I look forward to seeing that data when we renew because, you know, I, ha I have concerns when we're also, I would assume from your demographics, from the fact that 23% are 55 and older, 
being able to, you know, um, and what we know about the incredible trauma, both mentally and physically, that comes from the experience of losing one's home and having to live in the public realm. Um, I'd love to also see income data because I, I'm, I'm very concerned about the folks, it was in the statement you just made, that you said are not housing eligible. I would assume everyone where housing is extremely low income and would benefit from housing. And when we're reading in newspapers reports, whether it's true or not, that there's a thousand vacant units sitting there, to me, I'm not understanding why there's not more churn happening and why for some of our other sites that we are in the process of figuring out how to decommission, we're just not getting more movement out. We received a public comment letter to that effect as well, that folks are not moving out of, um, that there's questions around how people move out of these sites. So um, I would just really like to see that in your next report to make me more comfortable to, uh, you know, of course, I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize 200 beds in a, in a system that is so grossly underfunded, in my opinion, and under-resourced. Um, but I would hope that we recognize that most likely 75% or higher of the people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco need a permanent housing solution. Um, and so I would hope we'd start using language that all folks are housing eligible and that we should be looking at that pathway. And I just need more confidence that HSH can be a good partner to the port because I will say I'm seeing it at this site, but I'm not seeing it at other sites that we've partnered with you. Um, and, and while it's a citywide problem, we are one department where this is not what we are charged with doing. We're charged with maintaining a waterfront that has all sorts of uses, both housing on our seawall lots, but maritime, um, public open space, and other amenities for the public. So um, I just want to say those are some of my concerns that I really hope to see when you come back to us. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Lee? Well, I remember <clears throat> when this whole thing was a big neighborhood fight, you know, and I applaud you commissioners for dealing with that. Um, you know, I had three businesses in Soma, and uh, yeah, it has, it has increased a lot, you know. I don't have business in Soma anymore, but I know the struggles, and I support, you know, small business. And we have this problems with people sleeping in our doorways and uh, the whole bit. And of course, we ask for police services as well. And we don't have police services. There's short 600 officers, more retiring. There's only 30 people that are graduating. And a lot of them don't even finish. I mean, either they finish or they quit because they realize how hard the job is. The thing is, for me, I know the details because fellow Commissioner Gilman is that's her job, you know. But for me, the, the vision, right, for people to see uh, where safety and, and you could go to the store and the quarter market and be able to walk is important. But then, when, like you say, when you open the shade and you see six people in front of your building, it's a challenge. And, and the thing is, is, and I'm not saying you guys, I think it's a great model, at least this particular navigation system. I, I'm not really in that area, so I don't know about the other ones that uh, Commissioner Gilman's are talking about, but from the time I had businesses in South of Market to see, I see very less people on the street, at least in, in, the, in the safety zone, getting some help, better than it was when it wasn't there. So I mean, I think we're in the, in the right direction, but there are resources we don't have because of COVID, because of defunding, because of whatever, and it is what it is. And I know that the sheriff department has people, but I guess there's a political issue there. But 
I, you know, I'm, I'm supportive at least another couple of years to see what's happening uh, because, you know, we don't want to lose 200 beds. And where are they going to go if we have to dismantle it? And I know there's an incoming developer coming in, and I hope that we can find some permanent, you know, for Embarcadero, because if it does go, what's going to replace it? I mean, we're going to have 12 people in front of your house, you know, and, and, and how are we going to treat them? So I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, hey, since it's there, and you went through all that public comment and the fight and lawsuits, and now I think some of the neighborhoods are really appreciative to, at least it's there. So I'm supportive of the two-year plan. Uh, I'm sure there's more detail that needs to be done for Commissioner Gilman. But for me, I think it's a positive thing. So, you know, whatever you need, you know, what I have to talk to the other police commissioner and see what we can do. Uh, I mean, it's only so much we can do here. But at least I support what you guys do. Thank, Thank you. you. Commissioner Harrington. Thanks, President Brandon. Um, I agree with Commissioner Lee on, on much of this stuff. I'm supportive of this, absolutely. And I remember the fights, and considering that we have people who are relatively supportive saying we just need to do some things better is, is a, such a step up. Um, so the, the issues that they brought up, the, the whole police security thing, when I was in charge of finance for Muni, I actually paid the police on overtime to, to be working for Muni, and they still didn't show up. So I have no faith that the police will ever prioritize these facilities. If anything is important happening in the city, they simply will not show up. So I guess, has, has, has your department looked at, and I know these are controversial also, but have you looked at the kind of patrol specials, the CBD kind of levels of security, some other way of getting security of some sort that does not expect a police officer who won't be there to really provide the security. Is that, have you done that? That's an excellent question. This actually came up at one of our most recent community meetings in terms of could we look at ambassadors, could we look at retired police officers, are there other resources available? I, I will say, you know, the original ask of the community was specifically for the beat officers. That is kind of what we have pursued. That's the first choice, but... Um, and when we don't have a budget for additional services, the beat officers have been provided through the commitment of SFPD. So I think it's definitely something we could continue to explore. Um, but at this point, we wouldn't have funding for an ambassador program. I, I do think it's worth looking. I know there's a lot of conversations happening citywide on the coordination of ambassador services. And I know that the uh, the CBD in the area has also been incredibly involved in participating in these quarterly meetings. And so I think there are conversations we could have to explore other resources. But while I don't want to speak on behalf of SFPD, and I, and I hear your concerns, I, I do want to confirm that you know we have been speaking with them and their leadership, and they you know, have really confirmed that they will continue to prioritize this by looking at overtime, by looking at some creative measures of bringing on retired offices or other um, to uphold this commitment. So I think we are, we're interested in continuing to work with them to really see if we can make that work as the original community asked and then potentially look at alternatives if that's not working. So the letter from the, the folks asked for this to be part of an addendum. I'm, I'm not unclear how we... Um, how we actually codify what these promises might be. I'm not sure if that's a question for you or, or, or for port staff, 
Because they've asked for things like security, cleaning, those kind of things. And they've asked to have those codified in some fashion so they can be somewhat enforceable. How does that work? So does I, it? I think part of that is what's addressed in the interdepartmental letter um, that kind of nails down and specifies the exact um, expectations from each different department and what their obligations are. Um, we are also continuing with the good neighbor policy, which sets forward standards um, that are already existing in the current MOU, and those will be continuing in the next MOU to try to, to basically nail down and spe specify um, what the expectations are from the different departments. So do you have any suggestions for how you could actually enforce this? Where's, where's Delegate? Oh, there she is. <laughs> so I think we've talked about HSH kind of being the general um, reaching out and trying to do the enforcement and um, following up with departments who may not be living up to what the expectations are that are set forth in the Good Neighbor Policy or the interdepartmental letter. Um, but it is a, a written commitment that's signed off um, by the various department heads. Um, and so we would be relying on that to follow up with folks and, and get them to, to uh, you know, reach yeah. out and comply. I guess the question is, is there, it may not be appropriate, I, under, I get that, but um, you might want to think about whether you want to have an, an easy two-year extension to something if these commitments are not being met. Something that allows HSH to talk to the police department, to talk to others and say, they're, these people are serious, and if we don't do something, we won't be able to keep this navigation center going the way it's going today. But absent some additional leverage, I'm sorry, but I don't have faith the police department will prioritize it no matter what they might say, because it doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's one thing I think you really need to come back with something a little stronger about how that might work. The other thing is that the point in time uh, discussion. I, I have, I've always been amazed at our homeless council. I've sat through many meetings about homeless counts. Um, and remember when you did the Mission Navigation Center, the first one, the controller's office did a whole report about that whole center. And I'm wondering if you could reach out to the controller's office and see if they could assist in some way at how you do the point in time and or whether they could verify occasionally whether those point in time kind of things make sense. They already go out and look twice a year at all the parks in the city and do an evaluation of all the parks. They also go out at least twice a year and look at street cleanliness. And I'm thinking that they might be of, of assistance to you if you could talk to them about that. If I may, Commissioner Harrington, I think that's wonderful guidance. Thank you. I, I will note that the controller's office has actually been very involved setting up this quarterly tent count. They've really helped structure how the data is captured through the 311 worker app. I think one of the tricky things is that the quarterly count is actually set up not as an unsheltered count, uh, but for a tent structure and vehicle count. And we carved out the Embarcadero as the only area where we actually count unhoused individuals outside of those tents and structures based on the community commitments. And so that's why I'm interested in going back and, and I think if we could show the entire picture of what's being counted of tents and structures, it might help with some of that data. Again, I think yeah. it's not that the data is inaccurate, it's that it's you know, a point in time, 8 a.m., once a quarter, usually early in the morning where 
you know, it's probably before the wind, the shades are opened, and so people, are, if they're inside their tent, we're not counting them as a person that's unsheltered in the area. But I'm more than happy to go back and look at, you know, what the controller's report was around the Mission Navigation Center, um, and I, we have been talking with our HSOC partners as well, and our um, SF Hot team that conducts the count, just to make sure that we are all on the same page with how metrics are being gathered and information. And we continue to hear, you know, the point in time is is tricky in general. It's never going to be accurate. But yeah. but just to be clear, are you saying that if there's a tent, they count as nothing because you don't know how many people are in it? Exactly, because um, we haven't applied the same... That would make a difference. Sure. I forget exactly what the metrics are, but you know, in the, in the federal point in time count, we would see a tent or a vehicle and have a multiplier. Got that it. has not been applied with this count, and I think that is some of the the difference that we're seeing in the data. And so I think we can either look at applying that multiplier or providing a report that has people, tents, structures, and vehicles to give that whole Got picture. That would, be, that would make sense. Thank you very much. Of course. Um, Dylan, I just actually, off of what Commissioner Harrington said, just wanted to make a suggestion. And this, again, I do want to say I, I am supportive of the center. I just want a stronger relationship and partnership with HSH because while this is a citywide problem, this department is not charged with solving it. This department's charged with being a partner with you, and we have three navigation centers. I'm counting the COVID site on our property more than any other interdepartmental partner. So I guess I want to strongly suggest, and I'd like to get this as part of your report when you come back, you already fund two other entities to do ambassador-level kind of services, downtown street teams, unless you've ended their contracts. I, I don't know if, if you're still contracting with these entities. You were last fiscal year, and Urban Alchemy. I would like to see how you could redeploy those services to the three sites that are on port property to ensure. I just feel we should have the same level of safety, cleanliness, and outreach at all three. They should be uniform, um, in my opinion, because all of them, while this is the highest density of housing and neighbors, all of them have neighbors and communities, and two are in the southeast sector of our, of our, of our um, what we are responsible for. So I just would like to see I understand you don't have a budget. I completely agree with Commissioner Harrington um, that SFPD, um, I mean, God bless them, it's first responders, but this is not going to be a priority for them. They're understaffed um, completely, um, and we have spikes in all sorts of criminal activity throughout the city, including car break-ins that are um, affecting us citywide, affecting tourism, affecting our optics. So if there's ways to look at existing HSH resources, to redeploy them, um, um, particularly when we know we also, um, you know, I hate to say this, when we know that we have things like Fleet Week coming to the Embarcadero, we have APEC, we have other events where we're going to be in a spotlight all across our waterfront. Um, I'd rather have us showing our best way that we're helping our unhoused neighbors. So I, I do think you have resources to Thank redeploy. Thank you. Vice President Adams. First of all, I remember this very, very well. Mayor Bree took a very, very bold risk. And to her, it was about principle, not about politics. And it was the right thing to do. Director Forbes got on board, and so did this commission. And when we talk about a crisis, we have a crisis all across this nation. It's just not here in San Francisco, if we haven't noticed. And my good friend Alice, who, like the late Corinne Wood, have always been the conscience of this commission, was there 
when we had that meeting. There was about 400 people in this room, and there was 30 policemen in this room that <laughs> Director Forbes had so we could keep some kind of civil order and stability. I will say this, and I appreciate the lady over there that said that was laying out about the things that thank you so much. That's important. But you know what? This has been a success because there were a lot of naysayers. There were a lot of haters that didn't think this thing. Now, I think that there are some things that we have to improve on. Maybe there's a lack of morale, but I think we shouldn't throw this whole thing away. I think we can tighten up. I think we can make some adjustments. I'm proud of our mayor, and I'm proud of this commission for stepping up and doing something and providing a service that's really needed to this, uh, to this community. And we've always found a way to, to make the adjustments. I think we take the criticism. I think what the people have said, Alice, another lady had said, and I think we work on it. And I think it's good that you're here and that you can hear this. But I think this is, serves as a, as a template, as a pilot, because it was a pilot program in the beginning. This is why we did this. And we put it out there. And I chaired that meeting, and I remember the people that were for and against, and it was very passionate. I live in that neighborhood. I, at the time, I lived at 388 Bill. And I know people stopped speaking. It was very contentious. But you know what? It was the American way. It's democracy. Everybody heard, and they talked about it. And I, I'm listening to some of the things we haven't done right, but a lot of things have happened. And if I had to do it over again, I would do it again. Uh, I would make sure that the neighborhoods were safe and that people weren't doing what they were supposed to do. But this sets up as a model of what is good in our, uh, in our community. So I think we, we get it, and I agree with Commissioner Gail. Um, come back. Tell us what we need to do. Let's tighten it up. Um, if we need the police officers or whoever, is, let's have them come to our meeting. And let's find out what we can do, because we have something that's good here that I think and is benefiting a lot of people. And uh, and let's not—we haven't even talked about the mental health issues regarding this issue and things that people are doing. But if we don't have, if we don't help, then where are they going to go? Where are they going to go if we don't do our duty and our civic duty? Because we have a responsibility. I know it's important. We're here to make money. But also we have a social responsibility and obligation because this port does not belong to anybody that works here or this commission. This port belongs to every citizen of San Francisco. This is their port. We work for them. And they came out and we got to do something. And I think the mayor heard that and says, you know, we got to do something to get people off the streets and try to provide some kind of an avenue or a better life or make it safe for them. And I'll remind everybody in here, everybody can be critical. <laughs> don't ever get too high and mighty. Don't think that one day you couldn't wind up on the street and be homeless. Some people that, that, are, that are homeless, at one time, they had it all together. They owned businesses. They were millionaires. They were very wealthy. Something bad can happen to you in your life, whether it's drug, or a stroke, or something can happen, or you could go mentally crazy. Something can happen. You could be homeless. 
So I always say when you point that finger and show a lack of compassion, just remember one day you may need that same compassion. Thank you, Madam President. I give my chair to you now. Thank you. Um, Dylan and Sandra, thank you so much for this report. And I think we're all in agreement that this is a much needed site. Um, I, I also think that, you know, who am I to say it could be run more efficiently or more um, safely or, you know, there's so many things that could be done differently, but it's a needed site at this time. And until we need the site, I think it's a great place for this to be. But I do think that HSH has issues with keeping commitments. And I'm not saying it's good or bad or if you have the resources to keep the commitments that you make. I also agree with Commissioner Gilman where there's equity. When you do one thing for one place, don't think that you can just place something somewhere else and not have to do the same thing. Everybody deserves the same amount of cleanliness. Everybody deserves the same amount of safety. Everybody deserves it the same. So I, I think, and I, and, and I would love to see, you know, where these people are going. Of the, of the 414 people that you served last year, how many went to permanent housing? How many went to temporary housing? How many went back into the streets? And so is this really working? But I know that if you committed security to this site, I, I think you need to find a way to put it into your budget if you're going to if 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 you want to renew the lease. But it, it's what it's it's what you negotiated to get the site there, and you can't backtrack now. <laughs> we got you know we want we all want to move forward. We all want to see a place for people to be able to sleep at night. But but I I, I think we have to keep those commitments. And I look forward to you coming back in September or October. <laughs> soon, soon. <laughs> Thank you. Jenica, next item, please. Item 11 is new business. Commissioners, uh, I've recorded sort of the follow-up items from Mission Rock and oversight of the budget going forward, which we'll report back on as part of that item in October. Uh, is there any other new business? Mike, when I was meeting with the president last week, I brought up uh, offshore wind and how important is offshore wind is for the West Coast ports, and especially for the Port of San Francisco, the Port of Eureka, Long Beach, and possibly the Port of Richmond. And the president gave me his, his word that he is very supportive of offshore wind. It is the future. And I also talked to uh, Senator uh, Padilla, Senator from California, and Congressman Mendy. And they are also very, very involved in offshore wind. It's our future. And I know Andres Coleman, um, Maritime Director, is. And so I said, uh, I'd like to get an update on where we're at with that. And I know, Mike, you've been involved. And I think that in part of Maritime, that offshore wind will be a big part of the port of San Francisco's Maritime going forward. So thank you. Thank you. Any other new business? I, I got something. Um, I want to congratulate uh, Kim Beale's department for really getting our properties back and trying to <laughs> efficiently, you know, get the, uh, our cash flow going. 
Um, I read in the lease report on, on what the brokers have been doing, you know, sending out their 1,000 letters to new prospects. But Ferry Plaza seems to be the issue. <laughs> you know, out of, out of like the 1,000 people, I think we, you've got four responses or four tours. And I think we, I, I kind of like to keep up to date on, on these kind of inquiries because if we're only getting one or two inquiries on properties like that, I think we need to go back and really refigure out, is this property too big? Do we need to split it? You know, because it's, otherwise we're just going to let it sit there and it's going to continue. Brokers, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the fence about brokers, you know. If, if brokers do their jobs, you should get a lot of leads. If they just sit there with a contract waiting for people to give them a lead, it's not working because there's other brokers out there. Um, so all the new properties like Aliotos and things like that, I'd kind of like to know, uh, are we going to put them on a, uh, a list? Like, okay, here are the opportunities that Port have. Are we going to give that to brokers or are we going to give it to Port staff to handle? If we're going to give it to brokers, then I'd like to see the same report. What are they doing? You know, are they sending out a thousand possible uh, potential opportunists? Uh, are they getting tours? If not, we have to revisit. Otherwise, it could be next year before these spaces are activated. So I kind of like to see something in that line, similar to what the lease report has, but but not so much the whole inventory, but the ones that we're really focusing on around Pier 45 around the cannery, those those are our tourist attractions that we need to get activated. And, and instead of waiting every 30 days we have a meeting, you know, I kind of like to, you know, be a little bit more up to date on what's happening. Commissioner, so, that's, a, that's a great uh, set of direction and a great new business. We're, um, we're definitely pursuing a broker-managed process for all four of those Fisherman's Wharf vacancies per yes. the conversations we've had with the commission. Okay. Uh, we're just entering that contract now, and so it's very timely to start adding that to the leasing okay. report and having you up to date on that. That'd be so great. So we'll, we'll definitely continue that. Okay, thank you. Any other new business? Um, I just wanted to say again, we had talked a couple of commission meetings back about um, through the economic recovery report, finding out ways to cultivate um, our historic communities along the waterfront, particularly highlighting them at the cruise ship t terminal at Pier 27 so that folks, when they disembark, know that they can walk into one of the oldest African-American neighborhoods that did iron work and ship work, or they could go into the heart of North Beach. So I was just wondering if either through, it doesn't need to be an informational, but either through communication to the commission, we could just sort of get an update on ideas, or when we have our economic recovery report, if that could be included. Thank you, Commissioner, we'll add that. Is there any other new business? Motion to adjourn. Thank you. Um, I, I make a motion that we adjourn this meeting in the memory of Peter DeLuca, known as the mayor of North Beach. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? The meeting is adjourned at 641. <laughs> okay.